Senate Chamber, program signed. We'll start the meeting in open session. Okay, welcome members. Uh, can I first of all advise members of the need to maintain social distancing during the meeting? And can I say from the outset uh, that I look forward to working with the committee members as I take the chair of this very important scrutiny committee. Uh, to, I want to just provide a, a brief overview of today's business. So the committee will consider subordinate legislation, briefing from RAIS, uh, committee inquiry into decarbonisation of road transport in Northern Ireland, survey and stakeholder findings, departmental briefing, driver and vehicle agency, MOTs and driving tests, and a departmental briefing on DVA, lift action plan and public accounts committee report. Can I also advise members that due to some witnesses and members joining the meeting remotely, it would be helpful if members use the hand up icon to register that they wish to ask questions at each agenda item. Also, if members and witnesses could mute their mic when they are not speaking, that would allow everyone to hear the evidence and follow the meeting. Can I also advise members that the room must be vacated at 1 o'clock at the latest, and I request that members keep that in mind when, when asking questions. So um, we will go to agenda item 1 for apologies, and I have an apology from Andrew Muir, and also uh, an indication that Dolores will join in the meeting uh, later this morning. Uh, so, any other apologies? No? No. Okay. Uh, agenda item number two, chairperson's business. So draw members' attentions to page five, the clerk's memo regarding the informal meeting with the Transport Home Alternatives Group. Uh, have members any questions they would like to ask in relation to that? Uh, go to Keith Buchanan. The, the chair of that meeting, and appreciate the word added, we talked about possibly doing a visit on site uh, just to get a flavour. Obviously, some of it's not some of it's not from that area. We'd sort of briefly discuss that. It wasn't agreed. It was obviously going to be brought back here today for discussion. So that would be my okay. proposal just to, to go on site whenever it suits or the suitable time. Okay. Any other members wish to come? David? Chair, yes. I think it was quite a, a useful meeting last week, though it wasn't formal. Uh, certainly support uh, Mr Buchanan and his, and his request for even an informal type site meeting with, with the objectors. There did seem to be the ongoing situation of lack of communication. Uh, I know when we have met with the other side, the, the hub uh, developers and whatnot, that the, the, they, they tell us they have communicated, but it, there does seem to be a, an issue over communication. Maybe can we just hmm. clarify uh, with the developers just exactly what they have seen as, as being acceptable in communications uh, during the project so far? Okay. Uh, any other members wish to contribute? Sure. Okay. Uh, Cahill, yeah. Yeah, thank you, Chair. I want to just wish you well in, in, in your new role and, and we're happy enough to work with you. Um, Chair, I would support that. Yeah, I mean, an on site visit will have a proper discussion. I thought the meeting, even though we joined it late, was, you know, was a good enough meeting. So I'm happy enough to support a, an on site visit. So, if I'm right, we seem to have broad agreement. I'll put it to the floor about a proposal to go for an informal site visit, but also maybe incorporated into that from from David Hilditch in relation to perhaps maybe writing to the minister regarding uh, yeah. the concern about the lack of communication and and ensuring that 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 communication has been yeah. there. We do need to hear both sides. Of we the need story, to hear yeah. both sides. Are members content with that proposal? Agreed. Agreed. Okay. Thank you. Okay, agenda item number three is draft minutes at page nine. Draft minutes of the meeting on the 9th of June 2021. Are members content that the minutes are true and accurate reflection? Agreed. Agreed. Okay. 
Okay, agenda item number four, matters arising at page 19, uh, matters arising from the meeting on the 9th of June 2021. <clears throat> Can I ask members if they are, have any issues arising from the meeting? I, I see at page 23 there's outstanding committee requests for information. Uh, Keith? Yeah. Just on that, Chair, I've brought it up before, um, I just can't find the page, I'm looking here at the moment, would correspond, for example, to the Department of Health, it's what the committee has what tools have they got to try and get responses back? Because some of those has come back to early December. So what tools has the committee got to get okay. responses back if they're not getting them? In, like this timely and then there's six months. Okay. Well, uh, maybe I'll, I'll take another member's question and then I'll, I'll defer to the clerk. So, Cahill, your hand's raised. Sure, just two separate issues, if I may, Chair. Um, obviously, we were in the chamber yesterday in relation to the, the, the roads resurfacing issue. And I mean, I know that the, the ministers want to carry out an independent examination. Um, we haven't. Sorry, Cal, you're maybe muted. Sorry, Chair. Yes, it's about the independent examination that the Minister talked about into the roads resurfacing issue was raised in the Assembly Chamber. Okay. And I just obviously you'd ask the question in relation to the independent examination. I think it's important that the committee are kept up to speed in relation to that, those terms of references. And I'd, I'd, like, I'd like maybe to contact the, the Department and the Minister just to ensure. That, that were kept up to date. And also, Chair, the other one was in recent, we, we had a presentation obviously from the bus and coach sector, um, the, especially the private sector. They're not happy, obviously, clearly with the way things have went. The Minister is releasing their future transport document and it's all about decarbonisation. So they feel that they have a part to play in that. So I would like the committee to write to the Minister to ask how she's going to address the decarbonisation issues within the transport document and how uh, the private sector will play a role in that. So if we get those two issues raised, please, on behalf of the committee and ourselves. Thank you. Okay, so there, there's three issues on the table. Firstly, um, in relation to, to Cahill's comments, uh, are the committee agreed to, to write to the Minister for the committee to be kept updated regarding terms of reference uh, from yesterday? Yes? Yep. Great. Uh, secondly, a point that has been raised by uh, Cahill in relation to um, the decarbonisation report and, and ensuring that uh, the committee or those that are interested parties and stakeholders have an ability to feed into that. Are we happy for, for that also to be put in writing to the Minister? Agreed. Agreed. Uh, and finally, I'm going to hand to, to the Clerk perhaps to address Mr Buchanan's comments in relation to what tools do the committee have if, for example, we are waiting outlandishly t uh, for times for, for responses to uh, committee requests, etc. We, we can go to um, the standing orders for any uh, correspondence that doesn't come through, but it, it is the nuclear option, basically. We, we have written a number of times. Some of those issues now have passed. Last week's meeting, there was an agreement to review what information we need. So we've we've taken some of the older ones off, um, but we can, if members want, uh, urge the, the other committees again to. Well, when you meant a nuclear option, we're going to bring the assembly down. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so we're, we're going into the legal process then. Okay. If, if you. Yeah. So uh, we'll go to Roy first. The question. Uh, they, they, the, the committees have the powers to demand persons and papers, and. Um, Rather than having to go to the legalistic route, I think if, if, if we're not getting written answers on a timely basis, we can require that person to come here on a timely basis. And only if there were a failure of that, 
Could we go to the ultimate nuclear option, which is uh, the legal process uh, and enact the powers that, that, uh, that the Assembly or this committee already has? I think most re reasonable people, if they realise they're being brought before the committee to get an answer, okay. they would provide a written answer. Yeah. Okay. Would it be the committee's mind, perhaps, to, to, to write once more uh, to the Minister expressing our concern about the length of time uh, outstanding requests uh, have taken? And perhaps then, after that, then we, we can we can follow the route that are outlining to those uh, people that haven't responded. Uh, what outlining uh, in relation to uh, the length of time that is taken and, and what routes the committee can take? Uh, I see Martina's hand up there, Martina. Uh, Chair, uh, first of all, I wish to wish you well going forward in, in your position and hopefully we can all get on well and work well together. That's our intention. Um, Chair, this has been an ongoing issue and I think what we would probably need to do as a committee um, is to start to track this better maybe than what we have done to date through no fault maybe of, of our own because of the busyness of everyone's lives and what's coming on the agenda. But I think we should have a tracking system so that when, for instance, after three or four weeks or whatever one thinks is a reasonable period of time that we don't get a response, um, that we're, it's not just a note that we're, and that's what tends to happen, that we are informed that we still don't have a response from the minister or the department in relation to a particular matter. Um, so that then we can put in action what uh, what Roy has suggested before we would go to a legal writ, but we are long past the time really for some of these. In fact, some of them had to be taken off um, our request list because the matter had either been resolved or had moved on. It had taken that long for the department um, to get back to us or in fact had not got back to us at all. So I would like us to, as you're doing today, maybe at the beginning of the meeting, perhaps that's something that we have to do as members to put more of a focus on this going forward and call the officials up, as Roy has suggested, after a period of time, and then, if not, then go the to the next stage. Okay. Um, no, that's fine. And from what I am aware, albeit in my short time here, I have been shown by the clerk a list of outstanding correspondence uh, in relation to their their timing and how long that has taken. Uh, if, if members are content, we can put more focus on that for the next uh, week's meeting in relation to providing members with a list of outstanding correspondence uh, and those that, uh, that have failed to, to respond. Uh, and also included in that, if members are agreed, we could also write to the department to express dissatisfaction uh, and that we will be looking into this matter further. Are members agreed? Uh, right. I would agree with that, but I think it's also important that we do put a form more formal process in to make sure we are more timely in our okay. follow-up uh, in future as well. So just that, an automatic process that we will follow okay. to uh, identify those who have, have not been responding on a timely basis and then a staged process uh, to get an, an appropriate answer. Okay, I, I would agree with that action point. Are members agreed with those two points? Agreed. Good. Thank you. Okay, we now move in on to agenda item 5, correspondence. Can I draw members' attention to correspondence memo at page 35 and tabled? Uh, tabled at page 4, correspondence from North West Taxi Proprietors regarding issues facing the taxi industry, which he wishes to be addressed by DVA officials at today's meeting. The officials are here to provide a, an update on MOTs, driving tests, the lift action plan and the PSC report. Members will be aware that a briefing from taxi operators has been scheduled for Wednesday, the 23rd of June, on this matter, and the committee can raise any issues with the department that arise from that briefing. 
uh, tabled at page 7, response from the Minister for Infrastructure uh, to issues arising from the Committee for Infrastructure's meeting on the 26th of May 2021. Is the Committee content to, uh, with action points as suggested in the correspondence memo agreed, uh, unless, indicated, uh, unless anybody has anything to add to that, to the contrary? Is anybody an item they wish to discuss there in correspondence? Okay, agreed. Okay. Agenda item number six is subordinate legislation. The SL1 is not subject to assembly procedure. At page 130, SL1, the waiting restrictions on urban clearways, John Street and Calvin Street, OMA order, Northern Ireland 2021. At page 132, SL1, the road races, Garen Point Hill Climb, order Northern Ireland 2021. At page 134, SL1, the parking places on roads and waiting restrictions, Cookstown Amendment Order, Northern Ireland 2021. Are members content with the proposals for the statutory rules? Ten. Content. Agenda item number seven, SL1, the water and sewage services, Electro electronic communications order, Northern Ireland 2021. At page 137, the proposal is subject to negative resolution procedure. This rule will amend the Water and Sewage Services Northern Ireland order to permit Northern Ireland Water to enable certain notices and documents to be served electronically. Uh, the changes are intended to enable certain communications with NI Water to be conducted through electronic means as an alternative to post or hand delivery. Are members content with the proposals for the statutory rule? Content. Okay. Sure. Sorry. Just to query on that, does that mean that individuals are only going to get that be electronically or some? Okay, that's a point. We, we, I know that I know that yeah. not saying that, but it's just a query. So in other words, is everybody going to get electronic? We, so any public people that's not electronic and, and per broadband areas, what are they going to get? Right to the department. I have no issue with the rule, but it's just a query. Okay. So you're happy we write to the yes. department on that? For, yeah, but I'm happy with that rule, but it's just for clarity okay. on what other means of communication is okay. still going to be there. So, we're, so members are content with the strategy rule, and in the meantime, we'll also write to the department for further information in relation to that specific query. Great. Great, yes. Okay. Uh, agenda item number eight, subordinate legislation. SR is not subject to assembly procedure. Can I advise members that there are seven statutory rules not subject to assembly proceedings at page 140? At 100, page 140, SR 2021-145, the road races, uh, Carn Castle Hill Climb Order, Northern Ireland 2021. At page 145, SR 2021-146, the Road Traffic Amendment 2016 Act, Commencement Number 3 Order, Northern Ireland 2021. At page 148, SR 2021-149, the Parking Places, Green Castle Street, Kilkeel Order, Northern Ireland 2021. At page 151, SR 2021-150, uh, the One-Way Traffic, one traffic Belfast Amendment Order, Northern Ireland 2021. At page 154, the SR 2021-157, the Parking and Waiting Restrictions, Ballymena Order, Northern Ireland 2021. At page 178, SR 2021-158, the Control of Traffic, Londonderry, Order, Northern Ireland, 2021. At page 181, SR 2021-159, the Parking Places, Disabled Persons, Vehicles, Amendment Number 4, Order, Northern Ireland, 2021. Can I advise members to note the statutory rules uh, unless they, are, uh, they have any issues to raise on the proposals? Are members content with the statutory rules? Content. Content. Okay. 
Agenda item number nine, SR 2021-125, the Common Market Hill Road, Newton-Hamilton, abandonment, abandonment Order, Northern Ireland 2021. At page 187, the committee considered the proposal for the rule on the 14th of April 2021 and was content on the statutory rule uh, on the 19th of May 2021. The rule is subject to negative resolution. The attached document is in relation to a small correction in the rule. I believe it's a, a date change. Are members content? Content. Yep. Content. Agenda item number 10, SR 2021-148, the Low Road Newry Abandonment Order, Northern Ireland 2021, at page 190. The committee considered the proposal for the rule on the 19th of May 2021 and was content. The rule is subject to negative resolution. There has been no change to the policy content of the SR since the SL1 was considered by the committee. Are members content with this rule? Content. Yep. So I will read the following motion, that the Committee for Infrastructure has considered SR 2021-148, the Low Road Newry Abandonment Order, Northern Ireland 2021, and subject to the examiner of statutory rules, has no objection to the rule. Great. 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 Agenda item number 11, SR 2021-153, the Trunk Road T2 Balnehinch Bypass Order, Northern Ireland 2021. At page 198 of papers, the committee considered the proposal for the rule on the 19th of May 2021 and was content. The rule is subject to negative resolution. There has been no change to the policy content of the ASR since the SL1 was considered by the committee. Are members content with the rule? Yes. If so, I will read the following motion, that the Committee for Infrastructure has considered the SR 2021-153, the Trunk Road T2 Balnehinch Bypass Order, Northern Ireland 2021, and has no objection to the rule. Great. Great. Item number 12, um, we now go in for a, a committee inquiry, into, or the Committee Inquiry into Decarbonisation of Road Transport in Northern Ireland, and we have a briefing from RAISE regarding the survey findings. Hansard, Hansard will record the meeting, and it's at page 212 of the research paper, uh, and we'll just wait for, for officials to take their seat. Okay, so at this stage, I'd like to welcome Dan Hull, uh, Assembly Research and Information Service, uh, for attending in person to the committee this morning, and also attending via Starley. Daryl Hughes, Assembly Research and Information Service. Uh, so, Dan, I'll hand over to you for the briefing to the committee. Okay, thank you, Chair, um, and good morning, members. Good morning. Um, Daryl and I are here to present uh, a summary of the electric and ultra-low emission vehicle survey results. Uh, members will be aware that as part of the committee's inquiry into decarbonising uh, Northern Ireland's road transport system, the Assembly Research and Information Service were asked to prepare a, a survey to ascertain public attitudes towards ultra-low emission vehicles. Uh, members can find the research paper which contains these results on page 212 of your packs. Now, ideally, uh, it would have been our transport specialist, Des McKibben, who would be here to provide this summary, as Des was responsible for designing the survey. However, uh, Des is currently unwell, so we're very lucky to have Daryl Hughes, who is with us as a placement student at the moment from Newcastle University as part of a UK research and innovation PhD policy internship scheme. So Daryl has taken over where Des left off and will be reporting the results to you in just a moment. Uh, just a couple of introductory points from me though. The survey received 742 responses. 
It's important to note that these respondents self-selected uh, and are therefore not representative of the entire Northern Ireland population. So the survey results should be interpreted and used with care. For example, 76% of respondents were male and just 24% were female of those who um, provided information on that question. 33% of respondents own or have previously owned an electric vehicle, uh, which is far <coughs> higher than the 0.4% of Northern Ireland's registered vehicles, which are ultra-low emission vehicles. Now, there are five sections to the survey. Uh, number one, um, we asked about awareness of and attitudes towards policy. Number two, uh, attitudes towards electric vehicles, or EVs, and ultra-low emission vehicles, or ULEVs. Number three, we asked about experiences of EV owners and expectations of non-owners. Uh, we then asked about attitudes to transport demand management policies and methods. And lastly, we asked about travel behaviour, including COVID-19 changes. So I'm going to hand over to Daryl now, who's going to take you through those results in a bit more detail. Uh, thank you, Chair, and uh, good morning, members. Um, may I just check that you can hear me okay? Yes, we can hear you. Excellent, thank you. Okay, so um, as you will be aware, UK government policy is uh, currently set to ban sales of new petrol and diesel cars and vans by 2030. And this is to be followed by a ban on hybrid vehicles by 2035. Uh, now, currently, uh, around half of 1% of Northern Ireland's uh, vehicles fleet are uh, ultra-low emissions vehicles. Uh, around half of these are battery electric vehicles, or EVs, and around half are plug-in hybrid vehicles. And I'll refer to these simply as hybrids for this presentation. Uh, so this morning, I'll present the key findings from the public survey into EVs and hybrids. Uh, I'll also raise a few key questions that the committee may wish to consider in its scrutiny of electric car policy. Uh, so as Dan has already said, uh, the survey covered five broad areas, and I'll present each of these sections in turn. Uh, so section one uh, was all about the awareness of and attitudes towards the government policy. Um, now, um, perhaps unsurprisingly, given that the uh, respondents volunteered to take part in the survey, uh, most of them had already heard of the policy. However, only around half of them were satisfied that they had sufficient information to understand this policy. Overall, 77% uh, of respondents supported the policy and 18% opposed it. Um, however, despite the fact that the, the policy received broad support, uh, many respondents did actually feel that it, the policy itself was overambitious um, and even unachievable. Some felt that a more holistic transport policy was needed, uh, for example, to include active travel options. Uh, and also, um, many were concerned that uh, we need to make sure that poor people are not left behind by the transition. Uh, so section two uh, was all about attitudes to EVs and hybrids. So we started off by asking respondents about the benefits and disadvantages of EVs as they see them. And the most widely perceived benefits of EVs were perhaps unsur unsurprisingly related to the environment. Uh, so for example, 82% agreed that zero exhaust emissions were a key benefit. Uh, Another 60% agreed that EVs were environmentally friendly. Uh, and a similar number believed that EVs uh, had low operating costs. 
On the other hand, the most widely perceived disadvantages of EVs were related to range and charging infrastructure. So for example, 92% of respondents agreed that the lack of charging stations was a key disadvantage. 60% uh, agreed that range anxiety was an important factor and around half felt that long recharge times were another issue. Uh, on a slightly separate topic, um, three quarters of respondents were concerned about the high purchase price of EVs. Uh, and so we'll see these themes in the rest of the survey as, as well. Uh, we next asked respondents whether their next car will be an EV, and if so, when they intend to buy one. Uh, and then what we did was we, we split out the results here between the EV owners and the EV non-owners. Uh, so of the EV owners, 85% of these intended that their next car will be another EV. Uh, these people were generally uh, quite affluent, uh, environmentally conscious drivers who had facilities and space uh, to charge an EV at home, which crucially means that they don't have to rely on the public charging infrastructure. Now, the other 15% of EV owners uh, didn't intend their car, uh, or their next car, to be an EV. Uh, and this was overwhelmingly due to their poor experience of the public charging infrastructure in its current state. Now, of the uh, EV non-owners, uh, only around a quarter intended that their next car will be an EV. Um, interestingly, many of them would like to buy an EV in principle, but they expressed a lot of concerns about the lack of charging facilities and, again, the high purchase price. Um, and three quarters of EV owners didn't identify an EV, or they were undecided. Uh, and common concerns included the high price of new EVs and the poor reputation of the public charging infrastructure. Um, it should be said that some respondents were also concerned about the uh, environmental and social impacts of the transition to EVs. And so this raises uh, a question. So it looks like uh, privately owned EVs are currently most suitable for affluent people with space for home charging. Um, so what are the affordable, sustainable travel options for other people? Uh, moving on to section three. Um, this was all about the experiences of EV owners and the expectations of non-owners. So um, asking the EV owners to report on their experiences of EV ownership and use, uh, we found that over 90% were dissatisfied with the availability and maintenance of public charging stations. Uh, now respondents were very generous in giving detailed feedback and suggestions regarding uh, ways to improve this, um, particularly uh, things like the location, capacity, uh, the governance and the design of charging infrastructure. Uh, I don't have time to go into that, but I'll refer members to uh, pages uh, 236 uh, to 238 of the members pack, um, and there's some more, more details in there. Uh, we also asked EV non-owners to respond uh, or to report on their expectations uh, of owning and using an EV. And it's important to say that uh, EV ranges and charge rates have improved a lot in recent years as technologies got better. And the average new EV has something like a 200 mile range. However, most EV non-owner respondents would expect to be able to travel over 200 miles per charge, in some cases over 300, uh, 300 miles per charge, um, as well as to be able to charge rapidly, so i.e. on under half an hour. 
Now, currently, um, these kinds of ranges and charge times are available, but they tend to be, uh, you know, the more expensive vehicles on the market. So again, it raises an affordability question. Um, and so drawing section three to a close, I think the main thing to consider comes out of this is whether a strategy is needed to improve the location, number and capacity of charging stations. Uh, section four was all about the attitudes to transport demand management policies. So what we did was we uh, sought views on nine different policies which are designed to manage demand for travel in favor of sustainable modes. And it's worth distinguishing between the poor policies which are designed to encourage sustainable travel and the push policies which are designed to discourage fossil fuel based travel. And what we found uh, was that the poor policies were really popular among respondents. So uh, around 90% supported uh, invests, investments in the uh, public charging infrastructure, which again, chimes well with the rest of the survey. Uh, and 90% supported uh, subsidies for EVs. So things like uh, VAT cuts or grants for the purchase of new and secondhand vehicles. Uh, public sector investment was also a popular policy. So 83% supported a requirement that new vehicles purchased by the government, uh, local councils, etc., are EVs or hybrid vehicles. Um, this brings us on to the push policies, uh, and these were generally less popular. So uh, to give just two examples, 60% uh, uh, supported introducing low emission zones in town centers, while 36% opposed these. And the least popular uh, policy option was a mandatory workplace parking levy. Uh, so that's where uh, fossil fuel car drivers have to pay to park. Um, and this was supported by only 36% of respondents and opposed by 57%. Um, so the, the question this raises is, well, what is the appropriate balance of push and pull policies to encourage sustainable transport? And the fifth and final section um, was all about um, travel behavior. So we asked respondents about the, the way that they currently travel and their willingness to change travel modes in the future. Um, and we also covered something of the impacts of COVID-19 on their travel. So um, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that cars currently dominate travel in Northern Ireland. Uh, this is especially true for longer journeys. However, uh, we found that journeys under two miles were, were quite often undertaken by active travel options, such as walking and cycling. Around half of respondents would uh, consider changing their mode of travel for these short journeys under two miles. However, less than a third would consider changing them for journeys of over five miles. And this is really important because uh, two thirds of respondents traveled over five miles to a place of work or education. So in terms of COVID-19, um, we all know that COVID-19 has uh, reduced overall travel demand. Um, and it's also caused a general shift away from cars and public transport to active travel. Um, and some respondents actually indicated that they have uh, switched from public transport uh, to car journeys uh, in some instances. And after the anticipated removal of the COVID-19 restrictions, just over half of respondents uh, expected to work from home at least some of the time. So, um, this raises another question, which is what policies could encourage the continuation of the positive changes we've seen in travel behavior due to COVID-19? So those are the survey results um, and I'll just conclude that. Um, so 
uh, I'll say that the, the, the survey provides useful insights into the views of EV owners and non-owners. However, we have to be careful to not extrapolate these to the whole population. So uh, among respondents, there was a widespread support for the government policy to ban sales of fossil fuel vehicles. However, there were a lot of concerns and skepticism uh, about how this would be achieved in practice. Uh, many of the drivers would like to switch to an EV in principle. Uh, however, the key barriers to switching um, are things like charging infrastructure and range and the purchase price as well. Uh, the people who currently own EVs uh, were highly dissatisfied with the public charging infrastructure and the poor reputation of the charging infrastructure has uh, kind of spilled out into general knowledge uh, so that the EV owners are also concerned about this uh, if they were to, to switch. Um, in terms of policies, uh, poor policies uh, received high support, while push policies tended to attract more opposition. And finally, uh, there was some willingness to switch away from cars for short journeys. However, respondents were far less likely to consider switching for longer journeys. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Chair. Uh, Darren and I would be happy to take any questions from the committee regarding the survey results. However, we would just say that ne neither of us are transport specialists, so we may have to defer to our colleague Des McKibben for, for any more detailed answers, but we'll do our very best. Okay. Uh, can I thank you both for your presentation this morning, and can I, on behalf of the committee, send our best wishes to Des uh, yeah, as he recovers? Mm -hmm. In relation to the inquiry, I know that you cannot get into the policy-specific aspects, given that these aren't the experts in, in that field, but I was wondering if you could say something about the, how representative the survey actually is, given that there's a high number of EV car owners compared to the population, uh, and, and whether you would say the survey is useful or not. Yeah, I, th I think, well, perhaps if I start off, Daryl, and then perhaps you can follow up if you've got anything more to add. Um, the survey was useful in the sense that 742 responses gave us a really good wide range of information, um, particularly in terms of the, the qualitative information, the comments uh, which we've drawn together in terms of a, a series of different themes in the paper. Um, that gave us a really good impression, um, a, a really wide-ranging um, set of information. However, 742 responses is what, less than 0.04% of the population. And as we'd said at the beginning, 33% of them were EV owners um, uh, compared to 0.4% of the population um, of, of Northern Ireland's registered vehicles. Um, so I think we do have to be careful about inferring too much on a sort of population-wide basis. Okay. Um, same from Darren, is it? Do you want to comment? Yeah, I, I would just, just add to that and say that... Um, with the caveats that Dan has just mentioned there about the survey not being representative, uh, the survey is useful. Uh, so I'm thinking particularly about the uh, the experiences of the EV owners. Okay, they might not be representative of the population, but they do have really valuable feedback that uh, I think could be learned from. Okay. And secondly, in analysing the data, was there anything that came to mind you could think of which would be act as quick wins for developing this area of policy towards the 2030 deadline for ending the sale of petrol cars? Um, it's obviously difficult for us to make any policy recommendations. That, that wouldn't really be our role. I suppose the most stark conclusions that we would draw the committee's attention to are the, the wide levels, the very large levels of dissatisfaction with public charging infrastructure among EV car owners who are the ones who rely on it. I think it was 90%, wasn't it, Daryl? 
expressed dissatisfaction with the charging infrastructure? Yes. Uh, yes, uh, a very strong dissatisfaction, and that, that came out in the, in the comments as well. Um, yeah, I, I think we can't really, as the information service, talk about uh, sort of policy recommendations, um, but I would probably refer members to the um, those pages in your pack. So which pages were they? Um, let me just check this. So pages 236 to 238. Uh, where we've drawn together the effectively their recommendations from the survey respondents. Okay, thank you. I'll go over to, to members for, for questions. So I'll go to the Vice Chair, David Hillich, first, please. Thanks, Chair. Um, obviously, we've spoken about the, the ULVs, EVs, and the EVs. Uh, was there any, any talk of the, the self-charging hybrids within the survey at all? Did anybody refer to that sort of... <clears throat> Yeah, I, I can take that question. Um, there was mention of it, so it wasn't something that the survey was designed to uh, to elicit responses about. So we really focused on uh, yeah, sort of plug-in hybrids and electric vehicles. Uh, but the only time it came up was when respondents sometimes mentioned them. So some people say that they had self uh, self-charging hybrids. Um, other respondents were say EV drivers who talked about self. Um, self-charging hybrids. Um, I could take more more questions about that specifically, but it, it was quite a small um, proportion of the responses that even mentioned them. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. The correspondence the, to the survey. Then you, you mentioned, I think, there was a split between male and female, uh, which was quite significant. Um, when did you first notice that split? Um, I think it, it, discussing the results with. With DARES as, as they were coming in, I think it was fairly fairly clear, really, from from the beginning of the survey once it once it opened. But obviously, very clear when all when the survey closed and all the results were in. But there wasn't an opportunity to try and address that in terms of, of, of targeting female drivers, for example. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if perhaps the clerk or the committee team might be able to advise on how the survey was communicated um, to the general public. Um, I think it was made. It was made generally available. I'm not sure if we if we did perhaps make efforts along the way to address sort of missing sectors of the population. Well, that, the days first, for instance, as a committee member, I, I was aware of that. To be honest, you know, so it's news news to me this morning. And it is quite a, a differential in figures there. Mm. It is, yeah. We did go out to community organisations and th and try and promote it and areas where um, uh, we weren't we were underrepresented, but. That's the best we got. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it isn't a survey that was like a poll where you would you would try and get a, a weighted survey. Uh, it was essentially self-report. You know, self. Uh, um, uh, you know, self-identifying no, no, understand. <laughs> They're all users at the end of the day, but also. What, what evidence supports the claim that uh, most respondents living in sort of the tourist type, and there's about a third of Northern Ireland's housing stock are, are contained within tourist type, type uh, houses and flats, uh, dwellings that would be unable to install a home charger? Was was that a major concern within the within the survey? Yeah, I'll come in on that. Um, thank you for the question. Um, yes, so. This, this was raised by many of the respondents directly. So, um, for example, 
the many of the non-owning EV respondents said things like, well, I would really like an electric vehicle, but I live in you know, a small terrace house without a dedicated parking space or I live in a flat and I can't even park on, on my street sometimes. And so how would I, how would I have my own um, home charger? So this, this was directly from the respondents. Okay, thank you, David. Uh, we'll now go over to Cathal Boylan. Okay, thank you, Chair, and because uh, thank Don and Dar for the presentation. Also, extend my best wishes to to Des as well. I hope he recovers uh, soon. He's been uh, been a big member of the <laughs> reporting this committee for a long number of years. But listen, thank you very much for for the report. I mean, obviously, there's some good information in it, and. Which may not be reflected right across the board. I think there's there's something there we, we can use as a committee. Just darling, I just want to get on because the, the clearly the report talks about range anxiety, and I mean you heard Mr. Hildage talk there about 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 the, the male female. The, the most important thing is for anybody driving the vehicle is having the confidence that you got the range and having the confidence in the system. And clearly, the the charge network points, especially here in the north, not wouldn't be up to standard, wouldn't be up to speed. And we can see we've asked different questions of the department to try, try and bring that about through ESP and everything else. But my main question was, given the fact that we seem to have a slightly poor quality of network, um, and going by the evidence we have, across the board in terms of our jurisdictions, I mean, how how does that relate in terms of, of um, range anxiety and how, how are all the jurisdictions dealing with it? Because, I mean, we need to instill confidence if you're going to encourage people to buy vehicles, you know what I mean? So ju just, just reflect, if you can reflect across the report and range of some of that, please, thank you. Yeah, yeah, so range anxiety, as you point out, is a it's a really key factor, and it came up uh, time and again in the survey. We didn't do any work into uh, sort of different jurisdictions on that, so the, the information was, was purely um, Northern Ireland drivers. Um, I think the most we could say from the data is that some respondents uh, indicated that they have driven in other jurisdictions. So they've driven in uh, either the Republic or, or GB and you know, had more positive experiences in them uh, and then sort of compared Northern Ireland's infrastructure uh, disfavorably compared to that. But I think that was the only place that came up in, in the data. No, no, I appreciate that. I mean, if we're, if we're, you've outlined the targets in the 2030 and 2035, I mean, if we're serious about it, you know, besides all the costs, which the cost EVs are, are expensive, I mean, we need to be in, installing a proper system there for encourage people to um, to do that. And I mean, you know that the technology, technology is getting better, but obviously it's down to the price of the vehicles and everything else. So, I mean, clearly... Um, Probably a provision of fast charging would be the way to go because you, you've mentioned in, 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 in the survey there the lack of charging stations, range anxiety, uh, long recharge times and also cost. And I mean, those are four major factors that wouldn't instill confidence in people. But we've a way to go. But I think I think we made a good start and there's good stuff in the report. But just, just in terms of a fast charging infrastructure, would that be the way to go? Is, is, that, is that what we're talking about here in terms of coming out of the report and how we would actually address some of the problems that we face, you know, because a lot of us are keen to move forward with this. I mean, besides all the policy issues, we would be keen to, to try and drive this forward, you know. So just those points. Thank you very much. Thank you. 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 Thank you.
Uh, yes, very, very much so. So um, the this is the the capacity of the chargers. So I, you know, how quickly can you uh, can you charge a vehicle? Um, so the as I understand it, there are sort of three different uh, types of or rates of charger. So you have the slow chargers, and they spend many hours. Then you have fast, um, which might be a couple of hours, uh, and then rapid. Uh, yeah. So you know, rapid would be sort of, you know, half an hour and you get most of your, your battery charged. And this was another thing that uh, respondents talked about. So in terms of the EV owners, um, a lot of them said, well, you know, I, I can just about charge my vehicle, um, you know, when I can find a working public uh, charger, um, but they're quite slow. So I might have to spend, you know, hours waiting around for my vehicle to charge and queues could build up. So that does indicate that, yeah, you know, rapid chargers are, are definitely you know, a, a good option. Uh, and the EV owners also, oh, sorry, the EV non-owners uh, to some extent recognized that. I don't think they were quite as aware of the technical detail, but they basically said, yeah, I would expect to be able to charge my vehicle in under half an hour. Yeah, no, thank you. And just a final point, because it's not going to be a one size fits all. It's going to be public points. Like whilst we, we you will see the challenge that, that home charge is going to face in some areas and some, so we're going to need a mixture of, of public charge points and, and that's to encourage people. But listen, thank you very much for your report. And like I say, pass on in regards to, to Des. And thank you for Dan and Dara for coming along. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you. Cahill, we now go for uh, Martina and then we will have Roy, followed by Liz, and then followed by Keith in that order. Uh, thank you, Chair, and can I too um, send my best regards to, to Des and to thank you for the presentation and for the information we received. I suppose it's it's not surprising for any of us to hear that the, the lack of affordability of buying an electric car has been a big issue showing up in the survey. Um, can I ask, was there any responses from the survey about the impact of the British government decrease in the grant funding? For electric cars now, my understanding is this year it has been reduced from three thousand pound to two thousand five hundred, and although these vehicles would still be quite expensive, the grant allows for some level of support. So surely, if the plan is to ban the sale of petrol and diesel cars, uh, and if you want want uh, you want people to buy them as people to buy them to take up EVs then such support from a grant would be necessary. You'd want to see that increasing, not not falling. Yes, uh, so in in terms of a survey, um, so did people um, reference the, the, the loss of the grant? Yes, um, this came up with some respondents. So uh, I think, uh, yeah, you have to forgive my memory. I know with hundreds of comments <laughs> and trying to summarize them, um, but probably a small proportion of uh, particularly the uh, non-owners uh, who would like to own an, an EV uh, did reference this. So th this did come up and, and there was, you know, they expressed disappointment that that wouldn't be available because as you say, that does help uh, towards the purchase price. But beyond that, we didn't ask a specific question about that policy of that change. Okay, no, when I was listening to what you had said about the, the stages, you know, of the, um, of the responses and how you outlined them, I thought that the first one being cost, that, that that would feature, and I'm sure it will as time will go forward. I also note that the survey indicates um, that most responses 
uh, and most of the respondents were from the east uh, counties. Um, but I'd like to stress so that you're aware uh, that the west is just in much need of decent charge point uh, network. In fact, uh, in Derry, we have um, we have been looking at the the charging points here, and they're an absolute disgrace. And um, I had written not just to the minister, but also uh, looking at the um, electricity supply board um, about replacing the the broken charging points. So it just seems to me a massive contradiction. On the one hand, we're talking about banning, which is needed in terms of petrol and diesel cars. Uh, we're also looking at the cost of them. And then we have an infrastructure in terms of charge point networks across the north um, that are certainly not fit for purpose. So whilst it all sounds good uh, <laughs> in the encouragement that we're giving to people, there are very few people, I can tell you, in the Bogside and Derry uh, and around Derry that would have space for home charging. Uh, so if we're really serious about taking this forward, then we do need to look at the network uh, and find a mechanism through which the charge point networks um, are maintained and upgraded. Thank you, uh, Martina. Uh, could we now ask Roy for a question? Okay, again, thanks for your, for your update. Um, 742 responses. I think that's quite a good response. What's your impression? Of, I would have thought even that the department got that sort of level of responses, they'd be quite pleased. So. What is your professional view of it? Yeah, it, 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 is a good, it is a good number of responses in the sense that, as I said earlier, it gave us a really good range, particularly in the comments. Um, it, I mean, it, it's 0.04% it's roughly of the population. Uh, it's smaller than, for example, NISRA's continuous household survey would be 11 to 1,200. Um, you know, more respondents would have been helpful. Um, but it, it is a good, it's a good solid, solid body of data. Uh, for us to, to, to look at public attitudes to electric charging, certainly. Yeah, <coughs> and I agree with you that the, the quality of the, co the comments that have been made is, is, has, has been very useful. It's reinforced the impression, certainly, that I had uh, achieved from previous reports. Um, chargers the wrong type, you know, still old chargers, faulty, um, some locked at night, um, essentially chargers in the wrong place. Um, very few available in filling stations as developed elsewhere already. Um, in, in terms of mapping uh, locations, that, that's, that's a key issue to, have, to be aware of where there are working uh, chargers. Who has responsibility for that? Have you been able to find that out? Uh, I don't know. That's something we'd have to um, come back to you on in terms of, of mapping. I mean, there are services available like ZapMap, for example, which will provide you with a map of services and give you an indication of which charges are in use at any one time. Um, how reliable the data is at any one time on that service or on any of the others is maybe something we'd have to look into. Um, uh, we, we, Chair, we'll be happy to come back and okay. further information on that. Uh, and in terms of uh, this re uh, uh, feedback that you've received, did you pick up from respondents any tips that they have been able to pick up from, from elsewhere? Why exactly are we so far behind uh, other other parts? Um, uh, I, mean, I saw one comment that uh, free-to-use is doomed to failure. Obviously, if there's no incentive for someone to spend money uh, uh, and be able to recoup that expenditure, they're not going to repair it. And that's, that's essentially what's happened. 
Um, so did you pick up any other comments uh, or any lessons that uh, respondents may have been aware of elsewhere which have seen the success in, in other parts of the United Kingdom? Yeah, that, and that's, um, I mean, that sort of deeper context of the comparison with other jurisdictions is, is something that it would have been really advantageous for us to, to get to. Chair, we're very happy to, again, to come back with further research on making those comparisons with public attitudes in other jurisdictions. But, Daryl, do you recall any comments um, about users' experiences from other, from other places? Um, there, was, there was very little... Um, so I, th I think I previously referred to in an answer some experience of driving in the Republic um, and in GB, which is generally more positive, but there was very little information about that, and that was uh, not something we asked specifically, no. You were indicating that um, some saw the cost of the uh, EV uh, electric vehicle uh, being, a, being a barrier. Was there recognition of there's considerably lower running costs uh, and, and ultimately monthly costs could still be uh, a positive incentive even at this moment in time? Yeah, I think that was referred to, wasn't it, Daryl? It, it, it certainly was. So um, there's a section where we asked the respondents about the advantages and disadvantages of owning an EV. Uh, and it did certainly come up with, I think it was around, I think it was 58% of respondents um, said that low operating costs are great. So once you've <laughs> once you've managed to fork out the money for an EV and assuming you can run it uh, well, then actually they are quite cheap to run. Um, could that that could be higher, perhaps? You know, so you know, around forty percent of people then kind of didn't recognise that as a factor. So uh, perhaps that is something to look into. Just a final comment. I think it's been uh, very useful, and uh, there's follow-ups that we need to the department and the minister following this. Okay, thank you, Roy, and your contempt for the officials to come back on those number of points that you raised. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, uh, Liz. For a question. Thank you, Chair. I'm sorry I was late this morning. Somebody else came up, so welcome you to your first um, your first meeting. Um, thank you both. I mean, it's, it's been a very informative presentation. Um, I think it's really good. And I do wish to send my uh, best wishes to Des. I know Des has done a lot, an awful lot of work on this. Um, just a couple of questions I have, and it's probably leading on from some of the other points. Um, just firstly, I know my colleague Martina had raised in relation to people who living in um, housing where they wouldn't you know, for example, terraced houses or flats where they wouldn't be able to install home chargers. Were there any responses from, from people who lived in those types of settings about the inability of home charging? Did they offer any opinion, in, you know, suggesting maybe having a greater focus on public charging stations around those areas? Yeah. I don't know, Daryl, was that something that came up in the survey? Was uh, people who living in terraced housing, for example, um, uh, looking at the public charging infrastructure and having to rely on the public charging infrastructure around them. Do we have any comments on that? Uh, yes, I, th I think there were a few comments. I mean, there were there were certainly some. Um, there was there are some uh, EV owners who do live in, uh, say, terrace uh, and flats. There were very few. Uh, I, I don't have the, the figure off the top of my head, but it was a handful of people who have sort of managed to afford uh, an EV and then find a place to charge it at home. Um, and I think the only thing I can recall is that they found it very difficult. Um, so I wasn't quite sure whether they, they had managed to get a dedicated um, space for a home charger or whether they were relying on public charging infrastructure, but I, I do recall they found it very difficult. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, no, no, thank you. And I mean, as always, we've said too, a lot of the complaints are around the current charge points maybe not being in the right place. Um, so was there any feedback or much feedback on why they were considered poorly placed and how they could be maybe more strategically installed? Yeah, so again, this was something that uh, we didn't have um, specific questions on, but came out in the in the comments. Um, and so, in, you know, when we opened the floor to the respondents, um, I think a lot of them made um, they made reference to the fact that they're they're not on sort of key motorways, uh, so they're key routes um, that don't have enough chargers. So, so yes, you know, perhaps probably a strategy is needed to put them in the optimal places. Yeah, and I know we've, we've raised this at committee before. I mean, we would certainly be suggesting that the department looks at encouraging councils to draw down some of the funding as well that's available for the charging um, scheme because I know certainly I cover, I cover URI and there's very limited chargers and like, like other areas, sometimes they're not working and all of those things. So if we can uh, encourage councils to, to draw down that money, it would, I think it would certainly help with some of the, the issues that have come out in this. And the last point, just in relation to the, the, the points in the survey around where it said 23% of the current non-EV owners intended to buy an EV next as their next vehicle. Um, do we have any comparative figures from other areas in relation to the demand for EV cars as their next purchase? Um, and if not, is that something that we could look at um, and maybe get some data on as well? Um, Chair, we'll be very happy to come back with that uh, information to look at other jurisdictions on, on that, if that would be helpful. Yeah, that would be brilliant. Thank you very much. Thanks both both of you. That was very helpful. Thank you, Chair. Yeah, thank you, Liz. And we will. There's a couple of points there that we'll hopefully be hearing back from uh, the team on. Finally, over to Keith. Okay, thank you, Chair. Thanks, Don and Darren. Appreciate your efforts. And pass on my regards. No doubt the one regards to Des will cover everybody. Hmm. Do that. That'll be good. Just obviously the whole theme in this, or what I see, is chargers, chargers, chargers. And I would support of a variety point, and I'm not putting. Uh, well, you can use a simple map to indicate where the charges are in Northern Ireland. And I don't know how you find out up to date what's working or not. I think the last conversation we had at a meeting, I think it was a 25%. I'm going from memory here of what charges was not working. I'm guessing that figure, but there was a fairly high figure of percentage of charges not working. So it'd be good to get a map, obviously across Northern Ireland, to see what charges is where and types of charges, whether they're fast or whatever. But I'm stuck on it. Roy did touch on it. He must have read my notes regarding this. Uh, the uh, a free-to-use network. What's your thoughts? And I appreciate you can't influence, but what's your thoughts on the free-to-use network of, char of chargers? Um, I suppose it's difficult for us to comment on the, ahead, the, the, the <laughs> policy around that um, and, the, and the advantages of that. Um, maybe the most helpful thing we can do is to look at the way in which other jurisdictions have handled yeah. that in terms of um, you know, those who have transitioned from a, a, a free-to-use network into a various different kinds of, of paid scheme and where they are at with that and what the successes are like. There may well be commentaries that, that could be helpful to the committee that we'll be, we'll be happy to have a look at. No, it'll be good, it'll be good yeah. to roll out to that. So, um, although, yeah, it's not my opinion, um, but something that the, the respondents volunteered uh, was co comments regarding the free-to-use charging network. Uh, and essentially there was a mix of opinion. So some people thought it was brilliant. Hey, you know, free charging, this is fantastic. Um, but then on the other hand, a lot of respondents said, you know what, I'd rather pay. <laughs> it would be much better to have a paid for network that was properly maintained. Uh, and so I think that's, that's definitely a, a question for the, uh, the department um, to look at. But yeah, 
in terms of the respondents, um, you know, I, I don't think they were to one particular model. Okay, just a final point. I, I just see that a, a respondent has referred here to the department on page 22, sorry, 236, the bottom one of the paragraphs, Department for Infrastructure need to get their act into gear if we have any hope of being ready for the fossil fuel vehicle ban. I think that sums it up. Thank you, Chair. Okay, fair, fair point. Uh, so that's, that's all of members' questions, and obviously there's some engagement there that we, we need to hear back on, and no doubt we will. So can I thank uh, both Dan and Dara for attending the committee this morning, and we look forward to hearing you in the days and weeks ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, yeah. members. Thank you. Okay, members, our next uh, departmental briefing will be from the Driver and Vehicle Agency MOTs and Driving Tests, um, and we will wait for the officials to, to come into the room. I, on behalf of the committee, uh, welcome Mr. Jeremy Logan, Chief Executive of the Driver and Vehicle Agency, and Mr. Pat Delaney, Director of Operations, Driver and Vehicle Agency. And I think we have, yes, uh, Mr. Mike Beer, um, Director of Business Improvement and Corporate Services, Driver and Vehicle Agency. Gentlemen, you're, you're very welcome to the committee this morning. Obviously, this is a, an issue of great concern for the committee at, at present. Uh, and I understand we have two departmental briefings, but your presentation is rolled into one. So I would ask for, for you to give the, the full presentation now, but for members in terms of questioning, could we focus the first part of questioning particularly on MOT and driving tests, and then following that round, we will then have specific questions on the, the, the PSC report and action plan. Okay? So with that, do you want to point in before that, David? Yes, sorry, Chair. I had asked last week that some, I could ask some questions in relation to uh, taxi enforcement. Okay. And the committee had agreed to that, and I'm quite happy to tag it on at the end if that's. Okay, we can we can put that down for a point of note at the end. Thank you. Okay, so without further ado, I'd ask uh, I think it's Jeremy to, to lead off with, with the presentation to the committee. Thank you. Okay. Uh, thank you for your invitation to come to the committee today uh, to provide an update on DBA services. We have provided a briefing paper for the committee in advance of today's session, and I will draw out a few points from the paper about the current position. As is the case with many other public-facing services, COVID-19 has had a significant impact on DVA, particularly vehicle and driver testing services. We have conducted an extensive review of our risk assessments, and these are regularly reviewed to ensure they take account of the latest public health advice and guidance to ensure the safety of our staff and customers. Inevitably, this has meant that our testing capacity has been reduced as we continue to ensure the necessary and proportionate controls uh, for COVID are in place, such as hand sanitisation, social distancing and the wearing of face coverings. We know that this has caused disruption to our customers and we continue to work hard to mitigate against this. In terms of MOT services, vehicle testing is taking place at all 15 test centres and the statistics published yesterday confirm that in May 
we operated at around 76% of our normal vehicle testing capacity. This morning, the Minister announced our plans to return to full vehicle testing capacity from the 26th of July. To do this, temporary exemption certificates for qualifying vehicles will be extended by one further month. This will allow us to move back to the 20-minute test template and manage the demand for vehicle tests when exemption certificates begin to expire. It is important for owners to understand that it remains their responsibility to make sure their car is maintained in a roadworthy condition to be used on a public road. Motorists should also ensure their vehicles are checked and prepared before they are presented for MOT. They should not use the MOT as a means to identify any defects on their vehicles that need repaired. Turning to driving tests, following the easing of COVID restrictions, driving testing resumed on the 23rd of April. As announced by the Minister, there was a phased reopening of the booking service based on the expiry dates of theory test pass certificates, and we directly contacted those customers in phases one and phases two to advise them how and when they could access the booking system. The booking service opened to all customers on the 10th of May, providing everyone with a valid theory test pass certificate equal opportunity to book an appointment, regardless of their past uh, test pass history or previous priorities. As expected, there has been high demand for bookings. In May, we received over 15,300 applications for a driving test appointment, the highest level of applications ever recorded in a single month. In line with plans to maximise our resources to deliver driving tests, we conducted almost 5,500 driving tests in May, 35% higher than the previous five-year average for May. Private cars accounted for 4,661 of these tests, with the remainder spread across various categories, including lorries, buses and taxis. Driver theory testing also resumed on the 23rd of April, and once again, demand was high following the suspension of this service for almost four months. The 10,058 theory tests conducted in May was the highest number ever recorded compared to the previous May average of 4,851. An additional temporary test centre, which is located in Ballymena, opened on Monday the 14th of June and can provide around 1,000 test slots per week, and this should alleviate pressure on demand for this service. In terms of the financial position, I can advise that the agency ended 2021 in a much stronger financial position than might have been anticipated. The agency successfully secured allocations of resource funding totalling $31 million to address the loss of fee income arising as a result of the pandemic and some additional costs. The agency also secured $10 million funding uh, for the reinstatement of reserves that had been withdrawn from the trading fund in 2008-2009 by its former department, the DOE. The pandemic continues to impact on this year's financial position. The estimated loss of fee income due to the restricted vehicle testing is in the region of $5 million, and additional costs of $1.85 million have been forecast. These pressures have been registered with the Department in the recent COVID funding exercise and as part of the June monitoring round. Finally, in respect of the vehicle lift issues recently reported by the Public Accounts Committee, I want to assure the Committee that worked to progress the actions identified from the independent reviews commissioned by the Minister is well in hand. We have one remaining substantive action to complete, which relates to agreeing the design and specification of new lifts with the supplier and conducting performance testing, which is scheduled to be completed in May 2022. We are happy to take any questions you may have today. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Jeremy. Uh, I suppose probably this is an issue which has caused great concern, uh, and I'm, I'm talking now specifically, probably in first point about the driving test plans. There is a, a, a grave concern out there among the community as to how we address this backlog caused by COVID. During the 2020-21 financial year, the DBA conducted 9,502 driving tests. Yet the previous year. 
this number was 55,443. This is a decrease of 83%. So I suppose from a committee perspective, from an elected member's perspective, we are yet to be convinced that the Department and the DVA have a sufficient plan in place to address this backlog at present. We are hearing day and daily from constituents contacting us about how this is having an increasingly negative impact upon their life. They have obviously had the restrictions of COVID. They want to contribute to their family households, unable to get a test. Uh, some then do get a test and unfortunately fail. They are then thrown out of the system, having to reapply, and that, re that reapply appointment process could be three to four months away. We know the, the anxiety that that can cause. Can cause. We know the costs in that, that that can cause to young people that are trying to contribute to their family household. So I suppose what I would like to hear today is where is DVA with the recruitment process of additional examiners? Ha has that been looked at in detail? Is there any other ways in which we can approach this, whether that's the taking on additional, uh, perhaps temporary driving instructors to, to facilitate some of those examiner spots to ensure that we can get this backlog uh, dealt with expediently to ensure that we can, we can return to some form of normality in relation to, to driving tests? Okay, well, I'll start, and, and Pat can maybe add some uh, detail around some of the operations, um, you know, throughout um, the, the, the restriction of, of driving tests and indeed driving instruction due to the COVID regulations. We have been planning um, to recruit as many examiners as we possibly can. Um, we have the dual role examiners that we use to provide vehicle testing and driving testing, and one of the, the main and the quickest ways that we could um, put those guys forward for driving tests was to uh, get the, the majority of those temporarily promoted to do full driving tests when the service resumed. And of the 38 dual role examiners that we have, 31 of them have been temporarily promoted up to the end of September so that they can deliver and focus uh, the majority of their time on delivering the, the driving test service. We have also been recruiting additional um, vehicle examiners and putting them through uh, training for driving examining. Um, and that started on the, the, the 26th of April. Unfortunately, due to the restrictions, training couldn't happen in car uh, until they were lifted on the 26th of April. So that commenced immediately after the restrictions were eased. And we have gone out for a competition to recruit examiners again. It was advertised on the 26th of April. And um, the, uh, the interviews for those uh, competitions are due to happen um, next month, um, which will hopefully put us in a place to make appointments for new driving examiners at the end of August. So in, in the interim, say we have put our resources, all the available resources that we have had forward, and as the figures from May show, there has been a 35% increase in the number of tests that we have conducted. Um, before the booking service opened, we estimated that there was 22,000 people who had a valid theory test pass certificate that had not yet booked a test. And between April and the end of October, for the slots that have been released to date, we have released over 22,000 slots. And uh, you know we are cer certainly continuing to put on more tests uh, when the examining resource becomes available. Okay. Do you believe the additional resources that you're putting in place, whether that be additional booking slots and additional examiners, will address this backlog? And what's the benchmark for for the DVA in relation to getting uh, this this number under control? 
Well, I, I suppose there is no benchmark in terms of this is uh, exceptional circumstances. We've never been in this position before. Our focus has been maximising the number of tests that we can deliver and um, looking at how many resources we can put forward into delivering tests and also operating tests in evenings and on Saturdays and on Sundays. So really through the use of overtime and using our examiners uh, outside normal working hours, we are trying to deliver um, as many tests as we possibly can. We would need to analyse the figures that come through. Obviously, not everybody, and you pointed it out, not everybody passes their test first time, so we need to look at the, the, the test pass rate um, for both the, the driving test and the theory test to see how that is panning out. And we also need to consider then the, the applications that are coming through the system. I think we will have a better picture in the coming months to see how quickly uh, and how soon we will be able to get out of, of the backlog of driving tests. But I think we have made a, an excellent start through, through the efforts of, of the guys on the ground and the management teams that have put in place um, the efforts to take this forward. And certainly there is more slots being released um, on a regular basis um, when resources become available. What COVID measures are still in place, if any, that are preventing a resumption of full provision? Uh, and what specific impact are they, are they having, and how is that being mitigated against? Well, there is COVID controls, obviously, social distancing in the cars cannot be maintained, so the face covering is one of the mandatory requirements. There's obviously sanitisation of the vehicle, and indeed, meet and greet has been slightly disrupted You know, in terms of the time it takes to engage with the candidate at the test centre before they go out and test. So on a normal basis, we would deliver seven tests per day. That is currently sitting at six. But um, we have offered the permanent examiners an extra uh, half hour to do the seventh test in the day, and a number of them have, ex have accepted that offer. So, with all the examiners we have, we're delivering between about six and nine tests per examiner per day uh, of those that are rotated. I don't know if Pat wants yeah, to add anything more. Add to that, um, the number of tests that we um, were able to conduct per driving examiner when we resumed driver testing um, in September, October of last year. Um, was very much limited by the health and safety risk assessments and the measures that we needed to put in place for COVID. But as those um, measures and restrictions were relaxed, then we were able to respond to that and respond to it um, reasonably quickly. Um, so as Jeremy says, we're now up to six tests per day per full-time member, I'm sorry, driving examiner. Um, I have plans in place now to move that up to seven tests um, and be working with trade unions and staff to do that as quickly as we, we possibly can. Um, as Jeremy also says, we've got uh, our dual role examiners and they work a 12 and a half hour shift per day and they're doing nine tests per day. And indeed, some of our full-time examiners have agreed to do nine tests per day as well to help us out of it. Um, we're now uh, in the pro uh, are offering driving tests um, on a Sunday, which we'd, we'd never done before. Um, we started that with heavy goods vehicles and buses at the three centres where those are conducted, Belfast, Craigavon and new buildings. Um, I've had the, the test routes in the other test centres assessed for Category B driving tests on a Sunday, and we'll soon be offering driving tests on a Sunday from between 11am and 12pm. Um, to ensure that the integrity of the test isn't compromised and that those candidates that are tested are tested in road conditions that would be normal for a weekday test, um, and that will increase our capacity as well. We've also, as Jeremy pointed out, um, started to train a number of our own staff. The COVID restrictions limit the number of staff that we can train at any one point in time, so whereas we'd normally train around six uh, new driving examiners in one cohort, 
that's limited now to four, um, and the second cohort started training on Monday past, um, and we have another cohort to start again in September, and we've got the new full-time examiners coming in September, so that, that competition was launched on the 26th of April um, and closed just a few, uh, a few weeks ago, um, and we had over 300, I think over 300 applications for driving examiners, so we've got quite a pool of people uh, to draw from. But that process isn't simple and straightforward. There are a number of um, measures that are involved in that recruitment process which are unique um, to a driving examiner so that we get the, the right calibre of person for that, for that role. Um, but we would be hopeful that we would have them in post by early autumn. And that would start then to um, reduce the, the, the backlog. But I'm, I'm very encouraged with where we are now. I'm, I am very restricted in what I can say in terms of what the statistics are for the month of June, um, as they're covered by Office of National Statistics Protocols. Um, and just in case the chief statistician is looking, I'm not giving anything away. It's just that I'm very encouraged with the statistics. Okay. So, given the huge backlogs that we have and the inadequate waiting times for some of those young people, do you think it's fair that for those that sit in a queue uh, to get their driving test and fail? that they then have to go to the back of the queue again to, to reapply. Do you think that's a fair system, or do you think we can find a way by which those people that, for example, have been in that queue for months, unfortunately fail their test? Is there a way or an ability that those slots can be provided for those people without them necessarily being put out of the system to have to reapply for months down the line? But they're not out of the system, um, and they're not in the queue. Okay. Neither of those two things exist. Uh, when they fail their driving test, they apply for a driving test again. It's not a retest, it's a new test. And it's exactly the same as someone who's applying for the test the first time. They have equal opportunity to apply for the test. So as um, additional test slots are made available at the centre of their choosing or at another test centre, they have equal opportunity to apply for that test. One of the things that we have seen recently are people who have failed the test um, more than once. In one case, we have a, an individual who's failed the test three times, and their parent is complaining that they can't get their fourth test quick enough. I've seen um, you, the failure sheet for that, um, and the axes on it are very reminiscent to a spot-the-ball uh, competition. Um, the person isn't ready, and we find that there are a number of people who are not ready for tests. And if they were to wait that little bit longer and do their test, the likelihood is maybe they would pass first time. But we're finding that there are a number of people in the system who have done, the, done their first test and had two or three tests after that. Um, it is disappointing for us that someone can't get a test in a relatively quick time after they fail the, the first test. But looking at our statistics, you know, at the moment we're looking at um, a waiting time of around 10 weeks. Um, so that would be the maximum right out to the end of October. Uh, but, as I say, every single week, in fact, every single day, our, our test centres are adding additional test slots to their, to their booking templates. Um, and once those become available, they are open to everyone. So whenever they go on to the call centre or they go on to our online booking service, they will be available to them. We, at the moment, we are not prioritising anyone. The system is open to everyone on an equal basis. I, I suppose that, that's my very point, that there is many young people out there and anybody that's trying to get their driving test for legitimate reasons uh, fail that first time. And, and, and in most cases, a quick turnaround of another test 
Um, it could be anything from confidence building to, to other measures. Uh, allow them to have the confidence to go forward and then pass. Uh, the feedback that I am getting is that for them to be told to reapply in the normal procedure that you have outlined puts them sometimes months away, more additional cost to that family, and also they lose confidence. Uh, and what I am asking you is there a way by which those people can be facilitated uh, to ensure that uh, we are not putting added costs on families, to ensure that uh, the confidence and our mental well-being for those people that are applying for that test can, can, you know, we, we, can, we can all work together to, to achieve the same objective here. I think that system is unfair. And it could be said that to introduce that system for someone who has failed the test, that they are given a priority for a second test, is equally unfair to someone who has yet to do their first test, who may well have the same needs. I, I would ac accept that principle, but my, my point stands that I think, given the, the huge waiting times that those people have had to go through to get their first test, I think the system is unfair that they're, they're, they're automatically, if, if they fail, that they're and automatically the, put on. And the point that we, we, we put across to our customers and our candidates and to the ADIs is only apply for the test when your candidate is ready to do the test. Apply for the test, get your first date. We make available appointments on a regular basis. As I say, every day and every week there are additional appointments going into the appointment slot, and then you apply for an earlier date. But get your get your first date, and then you work back from where that is as more and more appointments become available. Okay. Well, I think we have seen that there's indications that people have been able to get multiple tests, even in the relatively short period of time since uh, testing resumed, and a part of that is down to the perseverance of the individual and the flexibility they show in terms of where they are prepared to take their tests. You know, so there's uh, there's evidence that people are taking you know their tests in different centres just to uh, get an, an early appointment, and I suppose if they have reached the standard for driving, uh, that's perfectly reasonable. They should be able to take their test at any of the centres that are that are available to them. So there's definitely indications that if people persevere, and as Pat says, more appointments are coming on, they will be able to secure uh, another test date um, much sooner than the, sort of the average waiting time. Okay, and finally, because I want to throw this open to members, in relation to MOT, if I apply for an MOT today, when would I be offered a test? If I apply for, in the same sense, if I apply for a driving test today, when would I be offered a test on average? Um, the, from memory, um, from the statistics at the end of last week, the average waiting time for a vehicle test across the network is around about 25 days, and the average waiting time for a driving test across the network is 78 days. I'd have to, I'd have to come back and confirm okay. that in writing, but that, that from memory, that, those are the, the numbers that I, I remember. Okay. Thank uh, I think MOT reminder letters they're currently issuing at six weeks in advance of your appointment date. So if you book early, you should be able to uh, secure an MOT test um, at, at, at a centre and, and hopefully one of, of your choosing, your local centre. But I, I, I get the, the stats every single morning. There are, there are vehicle test slots available at every test centre um, across the network um, at the moment. Okay. Thank you. I'll hand it over to members. So I have Keith first, then followed by David, Martina, Liz. Ahal and Roy at this stage. Not thank you, Jeremy, Pat and Mike. Thank you very much for that. And the, the chairs covered a lot of points on obviously vehicle testing. What capacity have you left between now, uh, approximately Jeremy, Pat and October, roughly? So uh, many slots for for um, driver testing is there between now and October left? So is there people in the system now that has a date in October? 
started to indicate to me there's no capacity between you know now and October. Yeah, yeah. The, the figures, I mean, they obviously change, Keith, on a, on a regular basis. There's are approximately 1,200 slots still available in the system, you know, and, and most of them would be in September and October. Um, but as Pat says, you know, we put on more templates when the resource becomes available. So there is a, a changing position. There is, is more slots going in, and you know, in June and July and August. Um, but at the minute, on the system, there's about 1,200 slots that haven't been booked yet. So many people between now and and. Say September, October, it's sitting in the queue waiting on a test. Just a second. Can I just clarify when you say the queue? Well, you know, waiting to do their, their, their driving test. In terms of how many tests have at, actually been booked? Yes. At the, the 1st of June, we had approximately 13,500 Category B tests in the, in the system. What, what is the department doing? That's 13,500. We heard this morning on the radio. Where 150 odd kids think it is today can't get a place, and there's a lot of shouting, and rightly so. Children need to be sorted out. What is the department doing about the mental health of those 13,000? And those are generally, generally now, young people trying to get to their work, trying to get further education. What's the department doing to, to try and help those people in the mental health? I have mothers on to me crying, mm-hmm. young people on crying day and daily. If I to say the, the 13,500 are. Uh, people who have a test booked between the 1st of June and the 30, uh, 30th of October. Um, so for the vast majority of those between now and the end of August, most of them I think would be quite content with that date. It's the September and the October people who are maybe um, would like an earlier date. As we put on additional lists, those people that have the earlier date tend to come forward and pick up um, the earlier template which frees up more, more dates in September and October. So what we're trying to do is put on as much capacity as we possibly can to address the backlog. And as the statistics for May show, we actually put on 35% more capacity than the five-year average to address the backlog. And our aim is to improve on that month on month over the coming months. So you're, you're roughly saying that you've, you've well, a 30, roughly a 30, 35% increase per day Thirty-five percent increase per over the month. Over yeah. the month. Over the month. And I say, without saying too much about June, you know, we would hope, you know, that you know we will go on a, on a similar trend in terms of that increased capacity for for delivering the tests. Back to the chair's point, and I know the point he was making in regard to if an individual goes for the test, there's obviously serious pressure doing a driving test. Even fi- even in my day, I'm not going to tell you what happened in mine. But even on my on on back two years ago, the serious pressure. The serious pressure now because they have to pass. Because if they know they don't pass, they could wait four months. This, the, the, and I think young people. Is the department doing any a uh, slight? Not saying you know any compensation for that. Person to be nervous, but the fact now the serious pressure on them because of the north of the field, they're waiting four to five months. What I would say, Keith, is that um, our driving examiners are very experienced and yeah. professional and qualified in what they do. Um, and a, a driving examiner will know uh, if we're within the first half a mile whether that person is going to pass the test or not, or if they need to give them a wee bit more time. So there, there's an element of discernment on the part of the of the examiner. So they, they help them they help them along. Um, we will not drop our standards in terms of the driving test. This is a road safety issue, yeah, and agree, yeah. you know. I've said to my driving examiners, um, we, I can forgive you for failing somebody that should have passed, 
but I really don't ever want to hear you passing someone that should have failed. Um, it's just it's just too big uh, a risk to allow that to happen. So whilst they, they, they will keep the standards for the driving tests um, at all times, they they will exercise their judgment because they know that this is a, uh, a different situation that we're in. And where the benefit of the doubt allows, the examiner will give the benefit of the doubt to the to the candidate. So, when, when do you see then uh, you've been back at pre-COVID times? So, w- jump back two years ago. What was the average waiting time on a driving test, roughly? So, from I looked at the day, alone would be you talked about uh, seventy-eight days. What was it prior to um, COVID? Between four to six weeks. Right. So, when do you see being at that point? So, in other words, the seventy-eight days coming down. At the moment, we don't have enough data. To um, make a, an assessment on that, um, once but, if we you, have, but if you have the figures of people, and sorry if I'm interrupting you, if you have the figures of people that has done the, the written test, as I call it, or the theory test, do you not see what's coming in the system? Well, we do. In actual fact, the theory test is quite interesting because in the last um, in May um, there were 10,058 theory tests on, which was the, 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 the highest number we've done in a single month. And off that, um, 8,582 or 85% were for category B. But if we use the last figure that we have for a full year in terms of the pass, the last full, last full year's figure for passing the theory test was 46.3%. So that, that would mean then that 3,970 people in May passed the theory test. So that's a figure that we would work from. And it's just, as we've said, you know, we're doing over 5,500 tests. But what we want to see is the, the volumes um, of driving tests increase. Jeremy mentioned earlier that we're using our dual road examiners. Because of the COVID restrictions, because of the relaxation, those dual road examiners were already committed to vehicle tests. So we're only really beginning to see the benefit of them from the, towards the end of May. So June will give us a, a, a better indication as to the, the number of vehicle tests, sorry, driving tests that we can do in a given month. So once we have all of the data in terms of the inputs, We'll then be able to estimate exactly, or roughly estimate when we could see a path out of this to pre-COVID times. Look at your figure back there. I think it was May. You said it was five and a half thousand, which is 33 percent higher than you normally did. And then you've indicated there you have 3,900 uh, theory tests. Okay. Yep. So you're only nibbling into the backlog by 1,600. It's a, it's a false pretense to give us a, hmm. a five and a half thousand figure. You're only eating into the backlog by 1,600. But the point I'm making is, is that. That, that was May, that was our first month, yeah. uh, and we haven't reached full capacity in terms of delivery. So once we get to the full capacity in terms of delivery of vehicle te- or, sorry, driving tests, then we start to see what our true um, outturn is per month, and that will give us a better indication as to when we, we, we'd be able to get through the backlog. Okay, and then one just final question for me on, on MOTs. Um, you, re- you referred to in your paper there regarding... Um, I can't find it. Regarding... Uh, yes... You've put, you're doing 76% of capacity at the moment, okay? and you want to get up to 100%, obviously, and you've put proposals forward to PHA, uh, and you're, going to do, you're hopefully going to be up at 100% by the end of the summer. What are those proposals, and why can they not come forward earlier? Well, one of the things, that the issue that we have is we're, we're currently running on a 25-minute test template, yeah. so we can't actually get that volume into our test halls until we move down to a 20-minute template. The first thing we're doing from the 26th of July is moving to the 20-minute template, but the, the further one month's uh, extension to the temporary exemption certificate then allows us to work through the vehicles that are in the system so that whenever the reminder notice issues for those vehicles that are going to be brought forward for tests from the 26th, 25th of August, 
that we'll have capacity in the network to allow us to, be, to accommodate them. Well, I think the other point too, Keith, is that we uh, offer out our templates three months in advance, so they were booked out on 25-minute test templates. There was thousands booked into that in July. Um, so to, to unpick that, um, um, you know, while we were obviously concentrating on the delivery of driving tests, the, the flexibility of that extra month uh, extension to the temporary exemption certificates um, certainly helps us manage the capacity in our test halls. Uh, but there's no question we have to refine our risk assessments. The customer is currently not in the car, and we are having to look at uh, a suitable option to allow that to happen. And we will be engaging with our trade union colleagues and indeed PHA to take that proposal so forward. You're obviously in better control of MOTs for vehicles than you would be if, if you know you have a better average. So when do you see that 25 days? Coming down, and what is that going to be? What was that? What was the 25 days prior to COVID for a vehicle test? Uh, well, if we go to um, just prior to our lifts failing um, on the 6th of January 2020, um, which is the best position we've been in in many years, the, the waiting time was nine days. So um, our aim is that over the the period of the next number of months, that we um, begin to work down the waiting time for vehicle tests, but vehicle tests is it's slightly more difficult to estimate now because the temporary exemption certificates has actually changed our operating profile. Um, we had our, our peak demand period was from January until April, but by moving, uh, giving the, the four months extensions, we've now pushed that peak demand period now out to July and August and into September. It also coincides with the annual leave period. So we're going to have to manage that very, very carefully um, over the over the summer months. But we would be hopeful that, and it, it's important that we are, that we're in that position by um, January of next year. So what we're doing at the moment is we're we're, we're offering um, vehicle tests on a Sunday at all of our test centres. Um, bank holidays, uh, the only day, the only two days this year, only two bank holidays that we haven't offered um, has been um, St Patrick's Day and um, the 12th of July. So we're, we're, we're working on every other bank holiday. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Keith. And before we take in our, our vice chair, there is mobile phones that are interfering with broadcasting. So could I ask members, please, to, to take that phone away from, from the mics. And also, it's probably more likely that it is coming from one of the officials. So if you could also... I turn, my, I turn mine off before I come in. <laughs> just right. So it's upstairs. So if anybody could just it's, it's interfering with broadcasting. So uh, I'll, sure. I'll, I'll uh, put the next question over then to our vice chair, uh, David Hillich. Thanks, Chair. And following on from your, your own line of question in, in relation to those who may have failed a, a test uh, recently, you were operating a, a Phase 1 and a Phase 2 customer situation for priority. Are, are you telling us today uh, that if they reapply, they could actually get in before like, so the Phase 2, which starts in the autumn time? or? Is that what you're no, the, the, the phase one and the phase two booking system was based on the expiry of theory test pass certificates. So before the booking system opened, all customers phase one opened on the 26th uh, of April and gave that phase one group exclusive access to the booking system for them to be able to book a test for um, for, the, for the other customers came in. And similarly, phase two, um, with a, a different uh, window for expiry dates, um, they were also offered exclusive booking after the phase one customers. So. All of the phase one and phase two customers, and we'd, we'd, we'd written out to them all directly um, to advise them how and when they could book their, their test, um, had an opportunity to do that before uh, the, the system opened on the 10th of May for everyone. So they should have had an opportunity um, to book a test uh, in the system. Okay, I was just wondering if there was an opportunity there for others to jump in, I suppose, at the end of the day. But 
Jeremy, uh, last time you were here, you, you, you told us normality would potentially be back. And you were given it around six months, and I know it was a guess. Would you, how would you view that now as a moving forward? Well, I suppose it's, I mean, there is an element of crystal ball gazing here, um, and we don't know, obviously, what um, way the epidemic is going to go. Um, the reality is that um, at the minute we're, 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 we're delighted that we can start delivering our full services and getting back to full service delivery, particularly in driving tests and vehicle tests, is an ambition we've had, and uh, we're, we're very hopeful that if, if things continue and the infection rates remain low, that uh, you know, in six months we would certainly in a very, you know, a, a much stronger position than we are and I'd like to come back to the committee to report that you know uh, the waiting times for driving tests and for vehicle tests are back to somewhere where we would expect them to be but um, it is purely speculative and I say if the figures that we have, have talked about so far um, come to pass and we can maintain that momentum I think we can be reasonably optimistic that we will made, have made significant progress by then. Okay, thank you. Uh, the agency have indicated that there was an extensive review of risk assessments uh, over their properties and personnel. Has there been any incidents of COVID-19 infection which have been attributed to the department, whether it be through workforce or the, the service and facilities available? Has, there, has anything been closed down due to the COVID since we last met? Or is, is there has been no services that have closed no down through infections in the workplace. We have had a number of staff, as you'd expect, yeah. um, when you have uh, over 700 staff that have um, contracted the virus uh, and that have had to self-isolate and that has had some d disruption to our operational delivery. But the risk assessments that we've put in place, um, be it the office-based risk assessments or those that are being you know, used in the test centres um, through vehicle testing or driver testing, we have no incidents of um, a COVID outbreak attributed to, uh, to the work environment. That's, that's good. Thank you. And just finally, uh, Pat, the, what the, I heard you talking about the dual uh, driving instructors. Uh, what distinguishes the dual driving instructors uh, from the standard driving instructors? Examiners. Um, the, 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 the difference is only that they conduct two roles. So they're, they're either, they are either a member of our admin team. Um, or they are a vehicle examiner, and what we do is we put them through. We, we, we seek an send out an expression of interest, seeking volunteers to become um, dual role driving examiners, which means that they conduct their vehicle examining duties or they conduct their admin duties. But on occasions, particularly during peak times, we then use those members of staff to deliver driving tests. Um, but they go through exactly the same training as a full-time examiner, so that they have to meet the same standard. Is that a lengthy process, or? Yeah, it's it's a, um, a four to five week full time training course, um, and it's set uh, to the standards in the European Directive 2006-126, um, which is commonly known as the Third Directive uh, on on driver testing, driver licensing. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, David. Uh, I'm now going over to Martina for a question. Uh, thank you, Chair. Um, can I go back to, to the issue of the message um, in terms of the DVA or sending to customers? Because um, as far as I understand, they're being advised to keep checking the booking system for availability. But some of the customers are telling me, and, and some of them I realize that, that they don't understand or realize that they should be checking it after initially being told that they have to wait months for a test. So how are you getting that message to customers to ensure that they're not missing the chance 
to have a test sooner and could this be improved on what you've been currently doing? I suppose there, there's two aspects that we use our NI, NI Direct site um, to uh, make all the information about our services available and uh, try, try and provide customer advice. Um, I, I need to check to see the content uh, and the specific content that you've raised is there uh, to help customers, but we have also used our social media channels to get those messages out. But it's certainly something that um, I'm happy to take away and look at to see if there's any way we can improve the communications just to help those people um, know that they should continue to check the system um, for availability as more slots are being made available at all test centres when the resources permit. Yep, we also um, make that uh, information known to the approved driving instructors um, through their umbrella organisation, NIAC. Um, so we've had quite extensive uh, communication with NIAC this year on a number of occasions um, to keep them up to date as to where we are with the, um, the resumption of services. But one of the things that driving instructors are very, very well aware of is um, the need for customers to check the, the booking system for an earlier appointment. Um, uh, and that's the message that we would communicate through that network. Yeah, it might be worth just checking that out because I think an awareness raising campaign might help, might help customers particularly um, can avail of getting a, a test sooner. And so I, I would appreciate just going, just going back and checking on that. Can I ask you in relation to what's been previously raised about the possibility of online theory testing um, as a way of improving testing capacity? Now, when we spoke to the minister about this, one of the things that she was concerned about was the possibility um, of this not being taken forward because of the test integrity concerns. However, in the South of Ireland, you know, remote online testing has been made available for certain categories of drivers. So has there been any update on EBA looking at the possibility of this? And, and if not, then um, what is the DVA's assessment of the South using, for instance, an online food test for certain drivers? Martina, um, I, I actually met with the Road Safety Authority in relation to this, uh, this issue. Um, and th there's a, a very clear distinction between what we deliver and what they deliver in, uh, in the South. Um, the administration and delivery of the driving theory test in the UK is a, is a joint authority contract between ourselves in the DVA and the Driver and Vehicle Standards Agency in GB. Now, that, that test um, is, uh, contains two components, um, a multiple choice section and a hazard perception section. It's the hazard perception section um, which is causing causes the greatest difficulty, in that the the video clips that are used in our theory test in the hazard perception are of a very very high definition and require very high specification PCs to deliver them. Um, now the issue here would be that the the, the technology wouldn't exist, particularly the broad, broadband technology wouldn't exist in many rural communities to support. The, um, the bandwidth that we would need for high specification hazard perception testing. And because the theory test is time bound, any delay, in, any delay in the test would result in the test timing out and then the student uh, being recorded as a fail. The difference between ourselves and the South is this, in the South they use still images and require low bandwidth. So it's very, very easy um, for, for the South to do the, the online theory testing. The other 
difference between ourselves and the authorities in the south is that they publish their question bank. Um, ourselves and the DVSANGB, our question bank is not published. Um, and we, we don't publish it because we want to encourage people to actually read the material, um, to understand the material, and then take the test rather than just learn by rote. All I need to know is the answer. Um, so the integrity of the test is incredibly important to us. Um, the security element of the test is important to us, and the, um, the bandwidth is and the, the high specification required to deliver the hazard perception element of the test. And uh, most most would mostly prohibit the use of it. But surely being hit with a pandemic, you know, some modifications could have been made. Um, I'm conscious of what you said, joint uh, contract, but, you know, the, the stark figures that you give to, to Keith um, about the numbers of people who are waiting on a theory test and then the implications that this has happened, particularly for young people who are quite eager uh, to get this stage of the process completed. Um, it strikes me that a year on, that perhaps more could have been done to try to address that. And, you know, I don't think that the integrity of the tests would have been impacted at all, given what, what governments had to do across the world, with procurement and lots of other things uh, that wouldn't have been the norm in normal circumstances. But during the pandemic, was there no way of getting online testing addressed? So that we could even try to reduce the number of people who are waiting on a theory test, let alone uh, do their driver's testing? The short answer is no, there, there wasn't another way. And, and one of the constraints in even exploring that was that the current contract with the theory test service, service provider comes to an end um, this year, and we will be moving to a new theory test provider from the 4th of September. And as part of the uh, uh, contract specification and the tender negotiations, we explored the possibility of online proctoring. Um, and it was ruled out at a very early stage by both of us. I say both, I mean DVSA and DVA, in that it, it, we weren't in the right place technologically to deliver that at the time. That's not to say that in the future we won't. It's only to say at this point in time it wasn't possible. I think the other okay. element, the other element okay. to, to that is that you know we did bring in other um, uh, suite of options forward in terms of extending three uh, test uh, pass certificates for a period up to twelve months to allow those who were in danger of their um, uh, pass certificate expiring before that an option to take a driving test. Um, so that has been successful in keeping um, those people in a position where they can book a test. And uh, the work that Pearson View, the current provider. Um, they, as I said in my opening remarks, they've opened a new centre in, in Ballymena um, on Monday, and they conservatively indicate that they can deliver a thousand tests from that site. So we'll obviously be keeping a close um, watch on, on on how many tests that can be delivered. But if the figures for May are anything to go by, where they've delivered over ten thousand and fifty-eight theory tests without that additional centre, by putting on additional hours and working um, additional times, hopefully that'll be able to manage any demand for um, theory tests over the coming months. Okay, we'll keep a wee eye on that as a committee and, as you say, maybe get an update to see how things are standing at the end of the month. And I'm conscious of the temporary exemptions that you've 
and, and a number of matters and a number of problems and concerns that people had. The most recent one that's coming to fore is about the need for a temporary suspension of the entry procedure to allow the taxi industry to play a role in the wider economy. Now, we've returned to some of the issues around the taxi industry, but given, according to recent figures, released that there has been a drop of sort of 809 taxi drivers, and I think there's somewhere in the region of 20 to 30 on top of that have not returned uh, during the pandemic. So given the unmet demand for taxis at the weekend, um, is there any opportunity for yourselves to consider the temporary suspension of the procedure just to cater for the unmet demand and to deal with as part of the COVID recovery for the taxi industry to play its part? I think ultimately those are, are matters for the department and the minister can consider. I mean, we deliver the operational um, testing for taxis, and there's nothing um, from an operational delivery perspective, be it vehicle tests, uh, driving tests, theory tests, or indeed the processing of licences on our side is is a blocker to the industry um, getting their licences. Uh, any change to the entry requirements would, which would consider the the likes of the theory test pass certificate or the requirement to carry out uh, a practical driving test would be the matter. Uh, for the Minister to consider, but we would be more than happy to feed into those discussions with the Minister. Okay, well, it's, it's something I think you should perhaps take a look at and maybe feed into here because it's being raised. When you talked about processing of licensing, um, uh, have you also engaged with the Minister with regards to the cost, or the licensing cost? For instance, uh, with for a number of sectors, last year there was a regulatory support for taxi drivers, such as the free renewal of their taxi vehicle license. So has those conversations taken place between the DVA and the Minister? Well, well, as you say, that regularly support package, which I believe is worth $1.2 million to the industry to um, provide a 12-month free licence. Um, some of those licences started to expire, I think, from the 10th of, uh, of March this year. Um, but I'm certainly not aware of any further discussions around uh, any regulatory easement around uh, licensing packages at this point in time. Okay, Chair, thank you for that. Okay, thank you. We, we go to Liz now. Thanks, Chair. And at this stage, there's probably very few questions left. Um, so I've just got a couple. Just going back to the, the theory test, apologies if I'm going over some of the ground that's been covered, but there has been an awful lot of information. Um, one of the issues I had, and I know there's a, there's a massive backlog, but I, I know just a constituent, a young girl who contacted me who had failed her theory test by like one mark um, but when she tried to rebook. She did it last week. Um, the next available appointment was November. So it was just to see, was there any, uh, you know, any effort to try and even prioritise people like that? You know, similar to you know, some of the other members talked about driving tests where there was someone had failed and couldn't get a, a slot booked, or a retest booked quickly. Is there any work being done on that? In terms of the theory test, if that person um, wishes to go on and, and change their theory test appointment date, they should find um, uh, ample uh, theory test appointment slots available uh, in the Bellamina Test Centre. Bellamina? Yeah. It's, it's a new centre that we opened uh, in Bellamina to um, deal with the backlog, and that, that centre can accommodate up to 1,000 tests per week. Now, what we are finding is that people who have got later dates in the uh, in the six established test centres are taking the earlier date in in Bellamina, 
and that in turn is freeing up slots in the, the other six uh, theory test centres. Um, but it's the same message about going on and just checking for availability. Okay, no, I'm assuming because it's from Yuri, so I'm assuming that's maybe why that wasn't considered, but I can certainly um, bring that back. Um, you know, just as, as another point in terms of the extension of theory tests for anyone that's expired, I know it's in the briefing, there'll be an eight-month extension for those in that, um, November 2020 to the end of June. Um, and I just was a wee bit confused because it does mention about a booking system. Um, do they, is, that, is that extension applied automatically or do they need to go in and contact uh, DVA? The, the extension to the theory test, uh, yeah. the certificate, that's applied automatically. In fact, it's already been applied, um, so they don't need to do anything. So, uh, but there, okay. whenever, whenever that theory test pass certificate expires, at the new date, there will be no further extensions. Okay, thank you. It just, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure if they had to rebook for it as they are applying for it, because it's, but I think it was more around the driving test um, spots. That, that's what it meant about the prioritising. That's grand. Just in relation to the tests, uh, the driving tests and the temporary test centres that were to be put in place um, in areas such as Cookstown and, and Oma, have both bookings already been made for those centres? Um, or are they, are they starting to open up slots for them? And will that include theory tests as well as practical? No, they, the, the four temporary test centres are for practical driving tests, um, and we will be opening them for appointments before the end of the month. Okay, that's grand. Um, and just my last point is just in relation to the waiting times. I know we said there, um, you give us an indication of what the waiting times were, and it said that it could depend centre to centre. Is there a, a, a rough estimate on that? I mean, when you talk about change, you know, it being different from centre to centre, is there an imbalance in the level of weight, or are they somewhat the same across the board? At the moment, they're broadly the same across the board. Um, the, the larger test centres, where we've got more driving examiners, for example, Belfast, there's more flexibility um, to create um, more slots. Um, the like of uh, OMA, for example, um, where we're quite limited. Um, which is why we're opening up the temporary test centre and reallocating resource to there. Um, there's less opportunity for us to increase capacity. There is still opportunity, but it, there's less opportunity. Um, uh, but across the board at the moment, it's, qu it's quite tight until the end of August. Okay. And just in relation to the additional slots that are being made available from now until August, do, do we have an idea how many there will be? Sorry, Liz, didn't quite catch that. Just in relation to the additional slots then that are being made available from now until the end of August, did, have we got an, a, a, a rough estimate of how many slots that will be? Well, we, we, they're, just, they're, they're um, issued by the test centre on a daily basis, so I, I don't keep the slots per, per centre. What I get is the, the number of slots across the network, so I would know how many slots across the network are issued on a daily basis per day, per week and per month. And would that vary? It varies, yeah. it varies from day to day, and oh. it, it depends on resource availability. And oh. Jeremy mentioned earlier in terms of overtime, so where we have dual role examiners who are off shift, um, we ask if they would be prepared to come in and do uh, driving tests whenever they're off shift. Um, so that then releases um, another list. The, one, the big difference between driving tests and vehicle tests <laughs> is that when we issue, God bless, when we issue. Um, uh, uh, short notice appointments for vehicle tests, they're snapped up in a heartbeat. 
Um, but it's not the same for a driving test because there are more parts uh, to that uh, process in getting an, an approved driving instructor to get uh, lessons done beforehand, to get the use of a car. So short notice um, driving test appointments aren't always picked up uh, as quickly as we would like. So we usually issue um, driving test appointments no less than three days before the, the test is due to give people an opportunity to make arrangements uh, to do the test. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Thank you very much, Chief. That's been very helpful. Thanks, Chair. Sorry, if I could just clarify the point on the temporary centres, just to make sure that there's no confusion or plans um, or to open uh, Cookstown and Oma yep. um, by the end of, of, of this month. Um, the temporary centres were really identified to provide a sort of like a, an overflow or an overspill from the main centres where the capacity of those centres wouldn't allow the, the examiners and the pupils to come in. Um, with Belfast, that's not so much of an issue. Um, uh, and, and Northwood, Coleraine, but the, the Oman Cookstown were planning to release slots um, uh, in, the next, uh, in the next week or so. So just to, just to put that on record. Okay. Thank Thanks. you. Um, thank you, Liz. Uh, go to Cahill now, please. Thank you, Chair, and, and uh, welcome, Jeremy and Pat. Um, Chair, I know people have asked similar questions, but I just want to clarify something. Pat, in, in terms of, and I know previously um, you'd stated, or, or the department had stated, that they wanted to get up for 5,000 tests per month, and obviously, clearly in May, you, you've, you've reached the 5,500. Can, can you tell me, just in terms of that, and I appreciate you're not allowed to give the June figure, so... Just in relation to what you've done in May, how many instructors was that? How many days a week was that right across the board to achieve that target? That was um, every day. For, for the Category B driving tests, that was every day in May, with the exception of Sundays. And, and how, many, how many instructors carried all that out? Uh, examiners. Um, well, we have, we, have 38, we have 38 full-time examiners, and we have uh, 38... Um, dual role examiners, although you can only work with half of them because they work uh, split shifts. So th that's the number that we're working from. F fair enough. And in terms of your projections, and I mean, I'm mindful of what you said about June, but in terms of your, your projections of the number of driving tests that's coming forward, how many, how many did you say there was in relation to that? I didn't. I have to be careful about numbers. I'm just encouraged by what I'm saying, Cahill. No, and I appreciate I appreciate the figures. The, the, I asked in the context of, because you said you were training up people for later on in, in, in the year in terms, and I'm just trying to get a trying to get some uh, you know bottom book figures in terms of how how many people you want to train up, how you, how you intend to address those figures coming forward. Well, That's all I have. So, so that in different way. Okay. In terms of the number number new examiners that you you propose to bring forward. Can you indicate how many of those? Yeah, our first cohort, uh, we had four examiners uh, in training, um, but only one of them passed. Um, that examiner is now uh, uh, in the test centre and operating. Um, we have a, another cohort of four, um, which started training on Monday of this week, and I'll get an assessment um, on Friday as to whether or not they're looking good um, for uh, reaching the standard. Um, uh, and we have uh, 10 new full-time examiners coming on board, um, probably get their letters of offer in August. Um, but the point I was making earlier on was that a lot of our dual role examiners um, were already committed to, to delivering vehicle tests in May. 
and we're only seeing the benefit of those dual role examiners now towards the back end of May and into the early part of June. So uh, we, we, we certainly see um, the benefit of having all of our dual role examiners delivering the nine tests per day uh, in the June figures. Sorry, and no, no, like I say, all the members in the scene, the chair, the chair was making case for, for certain people redoing uh, doing the test. And I appreciate that you've indicated there's some positivity in, in what you've seen in June already. But, uh, but maybe to both you and Jeremy, just in terms of those people who, in terms of the theory tests uh, who were cancelled during COVID and they had to go down this route of the placeholder appointment process, there seems to be a bit of confusion on whether or not when they went to confirm the appointment or, or the, they weren't really locked in in terms of having the test date locked on. Has that issue been resolved or is that still an ongoing issue? It's resolved. It's resolved. Okay. So the numbers, the numbers are complete so you're working, yeah. working uh, through all that. But listen, look at all the other questions we've asked already. So thank you, Chair, and, and thanks to Pat and thanks to Jeremy. Okay. Thank you, Cahalan. We'll go for the final question on this round to Roy. Again, like others, I get the impression that the, the MOTs are uh, more under control, but it has, has that been achieved given the, the flexibility you have with the two-year testing? Is that one of the main issues that you're able to get up to date with it? I noticed actually my, my own test has moved from August just to December, just when we're in the course of the meeting, I thought I would check it out. So. Well, well, certainly the, the temporary exemption certificates have, have been a, a big um a big help. Well, they've been a necessity to manage uh, the testing capacity, and as you say, they're automatically applied. And I'm, I'm glad to see that yours has been automatically applied, Roy. Um, so yes, that is working. But we know, and we've been working hard to get back to the full testing capacity. And the announcement today is a very positive one that we can do that from um, all being well from the, the, the 26th of July. Um, the one point that. We talk about the dual role examiners to free up the dual role examiners to do the driving test. We brought in 25 additional vehicle examiners to sort of backfill into the vehicle testing side. So, I mean, we have been recruiting and we are actually have another competition out for vehicle examiners as well as driving examiners. So it's going to be a busy summer period for us in terms of recruiting and bringing on both vehicle examiners and driving examiners. The, the, the driving testing is, is, is uh, much more difficult uh, to resolve. I commend you for your effort to date and that you've upped your um, potential, you're up your actual testing by some 35% in, in, in the month of May. That, that is good, but I remain concerned, is it enough and is it uh, sustainable? Um, I'm assume, assuming you will eventually uh, get the stage where the holidays kicking in, you will have uh, your employees wary of doing long hours of overtime. So what I would be interested to know is with these additional... Um, uh, dual skilled employees who will be transferring over uh, um, what your capacity will be on a monthly basis going forward at a sustainable level what do you think you'll be able to maintain the rest of the year based on these numbers because there's a huge backlog I'd love to give you a direct answer, uh, Roy. I mean, ultimately, over the, the summer months, we're going to have to look very, very carefully at the resources, both on the vehicle testing side and the, the driving testing side. Um, as Pat has indicated, we are going through a cycle of recruitment for um, some temporary staff and also for permanent staff. We will be in a supply position, and that's where we aim to be for both vehicle examiners and driving examiners. As Pat indicated, I think there was something like 300 examiner applications for driving examiners. They'll go through the process. We'll probably bring around 100 of them in for interview. 
you um, were looking initially to fill 10 vacancies, but we'll have to keep uh, that under close review, and we may then exceed that number depending on what the demands like. So I think we are going to have to continue to monitor it very closely over the summer months, and as you say, um, holidays kick in. Um, our own staff will want time off naturally um, through that summer period, and we will try. And our commitment is to maximise our resource to deliver driving tests. Um, over the summer period, particularly when we have the um, dual role examiners temporary promoted to the end of September, by which time we should have some of the full-time staff then recruited and trained and ready to you know, start, start the work. I think it's also worth pointing out, Roy, that, um, as I said at the beginning, our, our full-time drug examiners are currently operating on a template of six driving tests per day. Um, now, when we move that up to four, um, sorry, up to seven, then uh, we will automatically, in one week, increase our capacity by 107 driving tests. Um, so it's small changes can make fairly significant differences. Yeah. I, I'm looking at the size of the problem. 32,000 originally was the scale of the backlog. Um, you've indicated that in a recent month some 10,000 theory tests have been completed. Uh, an additional 8,000 will have been added to the list. So I'm assuming the total backlog is actually still getting worse because more people are doing their theory tests and subsequently we will be looking for uh, an appointment. Um, yeah, well, I, mean, I think those are figures, and, and I say because we don't have the accurate um, pass uh, rates for either the theory test or the driving test, 8,500 people didn't pass the theory test, so there will be only a, you know, possibly based on the previous uh, test pass history and around 50% of those um, will have a valid theory test um, certificate to go forward for a driving test. But equally, the 5,500 uh, driving tests that we conducted, not everybody passed the driving test. So those are figures, and we need to manage those to see, you know, when do we get back to the sort of the equilibrium of theory tests coming into driving tests. And I think we'll have a lot more information uh, as we get through the summer months uh, to inform that position. Mm-hmm. Looking at this historically and, and the figures that you have on, on your, your website, it would appear to me that historically you were delivering about 5,000 driver tests per month, roughly on average, historically prior to COVID. Um, and if you were to maintain May, at, which is 5,500, if that was your level that you were to maintain with a backlog of 32,000, that would take you 64 months. So we do need to ramp that up considerably. And uh, I mean, the, the, the cost of doing a test is not inconsiderate, but it actually means that it's cost neutral to the department. You may even uh, increase your, your, your income because at £42.50 or £62.50 for weekend uh, uh, and, and evenings, I'm assuming this is at no cost to, to yourselves because the, the applicant is paying for it. So back to the issue that I pushed, I think it was last October. Uh, of increasing even the number of temporary uh, 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 testers in order to deal with this backlog, have, have you, are you looking at bringing in even temporary? I realise there will not be sustainable full-time jobs, but at this moment in time, the thought of a perhaps uh, five-year wait before we get caught up is just not acceptable. So we do need a plan. You do need to have an estimate. I would have thought you must have some sort of calculation at what point you will become uh, more up-to-date and current uh, with that, that backlog. 
Well, I certainly wouldn't envisage that we'll be in this position in five years' time. I certainly wouldn't like to think, uh, think but, but so. It'll be one year' um, time. How many years? Yeah, and, and I, th I think once we get the information, you know, that you know informs us about when you know the people are getting the theory tests and pass those, and how many tests we're conducting, what the pass rates are, I think we'll be in a much better position. I mean, instruction and you know driving tests for pretty much ten months, um, you know, of last year were were. Didn't happen, and I know, and, and certainly Pat, through engagement with um, ADIs, uh, instructors are obviously under pressure as well now to, to deliver um, the instruction that's required. So there's a number of different um, angles to this, Roy, and we will certainly keep a very close scrutiny on it. The temporary staff that you talk about, we're promoting, um, or we're, we're using our own temporary staff, and that's what we're going through the training at the minute to get more dual role staff to provide us with that flexibility. And indeed, then we're looking at recruiting our full-time staff so that we can flex up our resource as and when required. Uh, and we are, as I say, our commitment throughout the summer is to deliver as many and conduct as many driving tests as we possibly can. And then on, on another day, in terms of uh, driving tests and you know, thought of applying and have to wait four or five months, what's happened to um, need for new ambulance drivers or? HGV drivers. I mean, we're hearing there is a shortage of uh, drivers in the industry delivering key key products for the economy and, and for the public. Uh, so, are they also having to wait four no. and five months for a test? No, no. The the, the issue here is Category B driving tests. Um, carry, the, your figures uh, just go back to them. Um, the average is four thousand six hundred before tests that we were doing per month. Of which 3,900. I was talking about overall yeah. tests, not just driver tests. No, 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 no the, 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 these are these are the figures. The, 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 the average number of fit, uh, driving tests that we did per month was 4,600, of which 3,900 were Category B. So we were doing um, about uh, 500, 600 um, other types of tests. So that would be motorbike tests, extended driving tests for people who were disqualified, <coughs> taxi tests, lorry tests, uh, HGV tests. We're continuing to do all of those. As well, indeed, um, off the figure um, of, la of, of May, 5,500 tests were conducted, of which 4,661 were Category B. So, we had the best part of 800 tests, which were not a Category B test, and that's because we were offering HGV bus tests uh, on a Sunday at the three locations where they're conducted. Um, there is still a demand for them, but our priority uh, is getting the balance right in this. So, we're using our, our higher qualified driving examiners to provide those. Higher, higher uh, category tests um, to minimise the uh, disruption to um, the service industry and the bus industry. Um, but at the moment, um, whilst there may be uh, uh, a slight delay in terms of what it was pre-COVID, we are working with our stakeholders um, in those industries to minimise the impact so, so that they can prioritise their drivers. The handling of those tests is completely different to the Category B. It is handled directly with the test centre. So we're working directly with the with the stakeholder. A final question to me then, in, in terms of uh, PSVs for, for for trailers, one of the issues that has been highlighted to me is uh, Northern Ireland uh, unusually does not have a means where uh, drivers can double check that the trailer they're picking up is PSV'd, uh, and there is a risk if they pick it up they become responsible for it and it can impact them on their license. Uh, if that can be done online or by a phone call elsewhere. Um, so this is causing a reluctance for some drivers to pick up Northern Ireland trailers. So my question is, when will there be a facility to check 
uh, PSV, whether of trailers, HGV trailers, whether it's online or by a phone call? We are currently uh, in the latter stages of introducing uh, a new booking and rostering system, um, which will replace the existing system that we have had in place for 20 years. Uh, and one of the components of that is for people to actually look up the, the history and the details on their vehicle. Um, now, I'm not sure whether or not that facility is part of the first release, which is due to go live on the 20th of September, but I can certainly check that and get back to you. Again, just for clarity, you can go online and check anybody's registration numbers, and my question is, when can someone who's having to check the, the status of somebody else's trailer can be checked, not just the owner of that trailer, but that someone who may be asked to pick it up? Yeah, that's the point. But, um, that system will now link into the DVLA system, so we will basically bolt on to the DVLA system, so whenever you put in that information, you can check it up. So, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure whether or not that facility is in the first release. I would need to, I would need to check that. And you can back with an yep. update as well, and that yep. will be Thank you. Roy, can I just add, just to your previous question, we did work with the ambulance service very closely during lockdown um, to deliver a number of tests. The regulations allowed us to do um, tests for those that were ancillary to you know, medical and, and frontline services. And uh, I think we put a number of um, uh, their drivers through during that period, um, working closely with the chief executive of, of the ambulance service at that time. Okay, thank you. We did okay. 25 tests during during lockdown for the ambulance service. I'm aware. Yeah, thank you. Okay, Th th thank you, Roy. And I suppose, as you can see from this first round of questions, uh, there is a lot of interest in this particular topic. Um, there's a lot of concern, so accountability will be key, and it's something that the committee will be keeping a close eye on, and we look forward to the figures that, that you're anticipating, uh, and we will keep further review on that. Uh, in relation to where we're going now, members, we're, we're going to now have focused questions in relation to the PSE report uh, and the uh, action plan. So I know you've already covered that in your initial briefing, so we'll just get straight into questions, and if members have any, uh, please indicate in the usual way. So firstly, could I start off by... By indicating, could you respond to the following finding in the PSE report? In the committee's view, the DVA should have been much more rigorous in estimating a lift replacement schedule informed by the usage of the lifts across test centres. Well, obviously, we um, and I was at uh, the PAC hearing on the 15th of February, and we, we have been through the detail um, uh, in terms of the evidence at that stage. Now, obviously, we have seen the report that has come from the Public Accounts Committee, and we are now moving to a stage where we will respond to that through a memorandum of reply. Um, to you know, by the 8th of July, I think our reply from the minister has to be signed off, and it has to be laid before the DOF on the 29th of, of July. Um, so, I mean. We had taken a number um, of issues, and, and the big problem for us um, at the time of the lift was that it all happened at once. Um, obviously, the, the cracks were identified and manifested itself across the um, uh, 52 lifts, and, and, and resulted in uh, obviously what, what happened next was the, the service. Um, was badly disrupted at the end of January. Um, we had plans in place for a lift replacement program that had been agreed with the former minister, um, uh, Minister Hazard, uh, back in 2016. And then, when the assembly collapsed, then um, we, we we hadn't got the, the the funding approved at that point in time. Um, but our plans were to roll out new uh, equipment. Um, throughout all our test centres. Um, uh, I think the end date for that was um, 2022, um, and that would naturally have replaced the existing lifts that we had in place. Um, when um, we sought further advice from the Central Procurement Directorate or 
um, construction procurement delivery, as I believe they're known now. Um, we uh, were advised to you know, continue to maintain the lifts, make sure we had a proper preventative maintenance regime in place, that they were being properly inspected, and, and that's what we relied on. A condition report was carried out on those uh, lifts in 2018 that said that the lifts were still workable, serviceable. Um, and, and I say the plant preventative maintenance regime was in place. Um, we relied on that. We sought assurance. There was independent assurance checks in place, uh, and that's where we um, uh, took our comfort and assurance that those lifts were fit and serviceable. And then, obviously, when the cracks appeared, and they cr appeared all across our lift stock, there was very little we could do. Health and safety was uh, our primary concern, and, and they were suspended on, from use from that date on the 27th of, of January. Okay. The, the PSC report re refers to the over-reliance on the contractor with uh, respect to the health of the lifts. What can the DVA do to address this particular matter? Well, we uh, put in place, following the Minister's review, um, the independent reviews, both on, on the equipment failing and, and suppose the governance around what we could do better, and we have uh, you know, the DVA action plan. Uh, which um, first, I think, published the first report published on the 31st of, of May, or published progress at the 31st of May last year. Um, and there's a number of actions within that plan that we're taking forward to improve governance arrangements um, and our internal processes in managing the, the contracts, um, both from the contract management team, the health and safety uh, operations team that are around that. And, uh, uh, Mike, as the director for that business area, you know, presides over it. Uh, and Chair, I was possibly going to suggest that it might be appropriate for Mike to come up to the table and replace um, Pat because he is, um, he there, is there, probably there, the lead official. There in this is an ability for, for Mike to speak from his position with microphone. Mike, so, if, okay. if you, well, you can move, right? So, well, go ahead. I mean, if I add to what Jeremy was saying, the uh, the Maha have been extended. A strict maintenance contract, as, as would be standard practice. Uh, we also have then the independent inspections. I think one of the lessons uh, that was learned that because that inspector worked through the Maha contract and reported to Maha in the first place, that was thrown up in the audit report. So we have since gone out and uh, ran a new competition, and now that uh, independent inspector reports directly to DVA, uh, which takes it out of, of, of the Maha. But as well as Jeremy was saying, all aspects of the uh, the maintenance schedule were re-examined, were tightened up. Um, aspects of the contract were all re-examined as well and, and tightened up. And, uh, and uh, we have been there's been a, a lessons learned report out of the uh, the two reports that were done at the time, the engineers report and the audit report. And I say we report on those now monthly, and they are published as well. So there's been a lot of measures put in place since. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I'll go to the Vice Chair, David Hillich. Thanks, Chair. And to be fair, there's probably about four members of this committee on the PAC. So well I think versed. it's one further. We're now going to go through the whole thing again, to be honest. I think it's you've been before the Public Accounts Committee and answered the relevant questions. I suppose, from our point of view, as probably authors of that report, is how we move forward. And I appreciate your, your input there and the explaining about the, the independent. Uh, Inspectors' report coming straight to DVA now, and that's that's what it's all about: is trying to get uh, confidence in the system again uh, after what happened. Moving forward, taking on board the, the, the recommendations and giving some guarantee of confidence to the public out there that things are moving forward. I appreciate 
the, the memorandum has to go back now to the PAC on the early July, is it that you think you said there? Yeah, I think we have to send our response back on the 8th of July and ask Belay before the Department yeah. of Finance so look, on the look 29th. forward to that, but what, what we, we, I would be looking for as a member of the PAC is, is that there's action, things are being taken seriously, and changes are in place to provide that confidence to the public, and the public purse as well, because it was obviously an expensive time. Okay. Thank you, David. We'll go to Cahill, please. Yeah, thanks, Chair. Once again, and like, like David, I'm on the PSA. We should urge that in some way in terms of interest. J just two points I want to pick up on. Um, clearly, Chair, we were all in the chamber yesterday we heard about the resurfacing, resurfacing issue in, in relation to some of the contact. And it's an issue that raises head in terms of record keeping uh, within the department and raises head on the PSA as well. So, Jeremy, just in terms of the record keeping, um, you've ticked the box and said that, that that has been acknowledged and that issue is going to be addressed. Would you like to comment on this to how that's going to be done in the future? Uh, where does that all go? Where does it sit? Where does it lie within the department in terms of who, whose responsibility is? Um, would you like to comment on this to record keeping in relation to this matter? Well, certainly, uh, record keeping is critically important across uh, all of the agency and the department. Indeed, um, there is very um, detailed records kept in terms of the management of the contract, the engagement with the contractor. There is regular performance meetings and the ma management of KPIs through the contract. Um, we have reorganised the director that make uh, heads up in terms of making sure that we bring the health and safety team, uh, and they work then cohesively with the the contract management team. And actually, we've had uh, internal audit into review some of those revised processes that we put in and identified in the action plan for them to validate that what processes that we put in um, ensure good governance uh, across the business area. So I certainly as accounting officer seek comfort from the fact that um, the internal audit have already looked at 17 of the, the actions, the 23 actions in the business or the action plan and have said, you know, have confirmed that um, they're either complete, uh, the majority of them are complete or substantially complete, and they're coming back to revisit that next week just to um, uh, give a further endorsement of the, the, the couple of recommendations that they had identified that we have taken forward now. So, I mean, record-keeping, it was highlighted in the initial um, uh, assessment report, uh, the audit report, uh, into the lift issues at record-keeping was an, an issue, and that was really at the time um, where uh, things were happening very, very quickly. Um, obviously, the lift issue um, happened on the 27th of January, and then the next uh, number of weeks thereafter were very difficult and challenging, and while there was lots of meetings to try and um, deliver the operations and manage the vehicle testing capacity, at that point in time, some of the record-keeping um, was maybe not as good as it, it, it should have been. Um, but suffice to say, Cathal, the, um, the records around the contract management um, uh, and the record keeping across the department has certainly uh, been in focus, and I am confident that we have and keep good, accurate records of all our management of our contract meetings and uh, all the um, feedback coming through the inspections and through the uh, independent uh, six-month examinations. The record keeping is for it. I don't know if, if Mike wants to add anything to that. Uh, not a lot to add. I think Jeremy touched on the point. Uh, we have a lot of routine meetings scheduled, you know, the, the monthly service management meetings and everything, and they all have always been very routinely uh, recorded and, and, and filed away. 
as Jeremy said, I think what caused us the issue then, because an awful lot happened and a lot of these meetings were created at very uh, short notice and uh, very informal in that sort of nature, then while there was emails floating about noting the actions, they, they weren't recorded as, as they should have been. And I say lessons have been learned. And I'm glad to see that we've sort of applied those because we're back into the same situation with COVID where we're having to react very quickly. So I say we're an awful lot more conscious now, all the staff, that we, uh, regardless of how informal the meeting is, that uh, we need to keep a record of it. And uh, as Jeremy said, the audit will be in again next week to check in where we are with the, with the actions before we do the next monthly report. No, I appreciate it, and thanks very much for the for, for the answers. I mean, clearly, those who were listening the, to the debate yesterday, I mean, there, there was an issue too in, in other contracts in, in respect of the road contracts. So I just I, I asked them that, and I know on the PSA we had the session, so I appreciate that. Just just one other question I'd like to ask from me in terms of one of the recommendations. Uh, the Commission review into the arrangements for DVA and assesses effectiveness, including customer <coughs> service. Jeremy, would you like to comment in, in respect of that recommendation arising from the report? Well, I, I suppose, Cahill, it's, it's really a recommendation. Certainly, recommendation one and two are very clearly um, for DVA, and, and we'll certainly respond to that as you course. Recommendation three is really more so for the department, um, and I know Katrina will be taking that recommendation forward, but no doubt she will consult with us uh, in terms yeah. of the review uh, on the basis of the, the trading fund sta uh, status that's been in place since 2016, and I think it's important that we always review the effectiveness of how we deliver our services. Um, so certainly I will engage with the Permanent Secretary and the senior leadership team on the, in that regard. I appreciate it. Thank you, Chair, and thanks very much for your answers. Okay. Thank you, Cahill. Uh, Martina? Um, and can I ask in terms of one of the recommendations in the report is that the DVA needs to renew and strengthen its focus on customer service now, the PA noted that this wasn't the first time that the DVA had found itself at the forefront of negative media. And um, as the report made reference to a significant weakness for driving tests, and we talked about that earlier in 2019, long before COVID. So how do you intend to take this recommendation forward? I would say that uh, the agency has prided itself on its customer service, and we deal with um, you know millions of customers through you know a million tests a year, and you know 100,000 um, you know other tests. So we obviously touch a lot of people across the country, and generally speaking, um, our customer service record has been uh, has been very very good. Uh, the one thing that I, I would say, you, you referenced some of the waiting time issues. That was not with driving tests, but with vehicle tests. Oh back gosh, in yeah, but are you saying that despite what the report has said, yes. that the EAC report says that you're saying that that wasn't the case? And the capacity, the capacity back in uh, issues around vehicle testing um, in terms of the waiting times, that is something that, you know, uh, unfortunately, we will have to manage, and uh, as Pat's already said, we are, we're, we've effectively moved now to seven days testing with the introduction of Sunday testing to try and, and, and meet the demand, the increasing demand for vehicle testing services. 
um, members will, will, will know that we're building a new um, test centre at Hydebank, um, and construction is well underway with that to be open next year, and we are hoping that that will alleviate a lot of those pressures uh, and enabling customers to, to get their vehicle test appointment um, you know, within, within time uh, when the reminder is issued. So there's lots of things that we're taking forward to improve customer service, and we'll certainly reflect that uh, in the response to the PAC and our memorandum of reply. Um, obviously, COVID has had a major impact on our services and uh, the, the, the impact on our customer services team, in particular, and on our operations team and those in the front line. Uh, we've never experienced uh, the like of it before. Um, it has been extremely challenging. No doubt there will be lessons learned from the process um, when hopefully we, we move into more, more normal times. Well, the PAC report wasn't just about what happened during COVID. Obviously, everyone understands that COVID has had a massive impact uh, on and has caused the pressures that it has. But the waiting times for driving tests that the PAC was referring to was in 2019, long before COVID. Uh, so, I mean, it would, I think some of the PAC members may be listening and uh, others that are in the room, you know, might find I, I was a little bit surprised when I heard you say about you know, applauding your customer service, given that the PAC has criticised you for it. So you probably be as well taking that criticism on the chin and showing the PAC what you're doing about it. Yeah, the waiting, um, the waiting time issue was to do with vehicle tests in 2019, um, yeah. and that's to do with the capacity. There, there hasn't been an issue with driving tests, to the best of my knowledge, but certainly anything we can do to improve customer service, and, and we, yes, we will take the recommendation from the PAC, and we will take it seriously, and we will respond yeah. in our memorandum of reply uh, you know, with, with the, the, the proposals and, 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 and what we intend to do to improve customer service across the agency. Okay, just... I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, can I also ask you in relation to an item that was raised in the report uh, where the DVA stated it wasn't possible to, to determine the absolute life cycle of each vehicle lift as it's determined by a number of factors and you just talked about load distribution, load itself and a number of lift cycles. But upon reflection, I'm just asking you, how do you feel about that statement? Because surely the specification of each vehicle lift that was being purchased, and surely they give such a determination so that it should have been possible to at least give an estimation of life expectancy. Uh, we, we met with, with Maha and you know their own managing director identified that you know their lifts um, could potentially last anywhere between 20, or between five and twenty five years and it depended on a number of factors and, and obviously usage and, and the load that they were carrying were all factors in that going forward and, and, and obviously we want to ensure that uh, this never happens again. Um, Ma have confirmed that they will stand over the lift um, based on the usage and DVA environment for at least four years. Uh, and we now need to look at how we refine that model. We have fitted the lifts with uh, vehicle counters to try and give us a more accurate assessment of um, the, the, their usage and the loads that they're carrying to help us inform more accurately um, our replacement programme. But we have also uh, a new equipment provider that we're working with at the minute to performance test their new equipment, which will be rolled out. Uh, the first centre it will be rolled out to will be in Hydebank, and then it will be rolled out to other centres thereafter. So we will also need to have the same discussions and work with them to ensure that we get an accurate assessment and inform our future um, lift replacement programmes. But inevitably, we're going to replace lifts more frequently than we, than, than we had done previously, and that clearly is one of the lessons learned from, uh, from this lift episode. Okay. 
Could I just okay. add to that then? Yeah, as Jeremy was saying, the um, what was explained to us really what the manufacturer had done was you know put the maximum weight on a lift and and fully extend that lift and and that's when it came up with the certain um, cycles like twenty two thousand. Ours typically probably would be only a quarter of the weight of the maximum weight on the lifts, and again, you're not always fully extending the lifts. So once you had those random factors, and then the managing director from my house said it was very difficult to quantify it. But what we're doing is we're working with them at the moment. As Jeremy says, we have fitted cycle counters. We're working with them, given the average weight of our vehicles and all their metrics around our own, can we come up with a, a counter that would be accurate for, for DVA? And uh, the other comforting thing, really, to, get to let the committee know is we will be replacing those lifts now as part of this new contract. So the current lifts that have just been purchased will be all replaced within that four or five years where Maha guarantee it. And then we bring in a new lifts and then we'll reply all our lessons learned then to the new lifts. And if I could just go back to your previous question on the communications too. Um, we're in the middle of a, of a large transformation project program, we have been, and uh, we're creating more online services for the customer. Uh, Pat mentioned earlier then a new booking system that will go live in September. One of the lessons learned is we want to contact our customers with the old booking system. In some cases, we have a, a, a mobile number and we can do very quick texts or got an email address. Other times, it's just postal addresses. So really going forward as part of the strategy, we want to be able to communicate with people very quickly. So we will be pushing to see if we can get the mobile numbers, email addresses, so that we can be very interactive with, uh, with the customers. Reassuring. Finally, can I say that look, this debacle has cost millions of pounds and it stopped people from getting MOT and some of those people, as you know, drove for a living. But not only that, um, the lack of safety inspections put staff at risk. So it's absolutely vital that the proper safety procedures are in place and stay in place. And are you satisfied that lessons have been less learned and that your staff will be protected now going forward? Yes, uh, I'm satisfied that lessons have been learned from, from this. And as Mike says, there is you know, a, a lessons learned report from the action plan and all the steps that we've taken. Um, the reason why we suspended the uses of the lifts was for the very reason of protecting the health and safety uh, of our staff and our customers. That was certainly not something that we would have contemplated continuing when the, the, the cracks were identified. Um, but you know, thankfully, the, the new lifts are in place, the new inspection regimes in place. Um, our action plan is substantially complete, and I am hoping um, that this can sort of close that um, that, that chapter and, and going forward that this will not happen again. I want to acknowledge the work done by the PAC and the members of this committee who are also on the PAC, and I appreciate what we've heard today, that lessons have been learned, and it's something that the committee, I'm sure, will monitor now going forward. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. We'll go to Liz now for a question. Thanks, Chair, and thank you for, for your answers so far. Um, just, I suppose, leading on from what Martina said there in, in terms of um, the new lifts, and, and the responses in relation to that. I know um, during the investigation it said the lifts had undertaken approximately 150 to 160,000 cycles since they'd been installed. Um, despite it said that there was 22,000 cycles is what they were designed for. So is it, you know, I would say now that the new lifts will be capped at the 20, 22,000 cycle lifts? 
Uh, it's, uh, I suppose back to the point that Mike raised, the 22,000 um, lift cycles was based on the lifts carrying the full load, um, which in, in most cases in our test centres are probably only carrying about a quarter of that load. So uh, it's important for us to put in the metrics to accurately assess the life expectancy for the lifts in the DVA environment specifically. Uh, the one thing um, <coughs> say we have comfort that uh, MAHA have, have, have guaranteed the life expectancy of the lifts um, for, for the next four years, and, and any refinement on that through the uh, the, the metrics as we put in place in terms of the counters and the load capacity and those will help inform the replacement program so um, you know certainly um, those first lifts were installed I think they started to be installed about March of, of last year so you know they have um, you know significant life expectancy remaining um, notwithstanding the ongoing plan preventative maintenance regime will continue as will the thorough examinations by the independent insurance company. <coughs> Yeah. So do you think then, Jeremy, it would mean that looking back at the, the volume of cycles in the previous lifts, that it would probably be reduced though going forward? Uh, yes, I, I would anticipate that we will end up replacing lifts more frequently uh, than certainly the last number of lifts. Um, I wouldn't want to speculate on a timescale for that, but I certainly think it will, will there be a more frequent uh, equipment replacement as a result of this. Okay, and I mean, apart from purchasing of new equipment, and obviously that will have an additional cost if they are being replaced more quickly, have any of the new safety mechanisms that are in place now following this have an additional any additional cost for DBA? I don't believe that there is significant additional cost with the mechanisms that we put in place. Most of those are uh, improved management arrangements. Um, I say we have taken the independent insurance inspections and we have contracted it out directly to ourselves as opposed to through MAHA. But I'm certainly not aware of any additional cost through the, the safety controls that we put in place. No, cost will, cost will be minimal. Okay, I know that's good. And I mean, it's, I suppose it is just reviewing and improving what's what's in, in place. My last question is just when looking at the, the outstanding action plan for the lifts, one of the remaining actions related to agreeing the design and spec for new lifts with the supplier and conducting performance testing which was scheduled to be completed by May 22. Just could you elaborate a wee bit more on that process and, and, and a wee bit of a, de a detail around why it's anticipated for May next year? Well, I'll start and then I'll hand over to Pat, who's the senior responsible owner for the equipment uh, project, so we will have a lot of detail. We have set up um, a pilot test lane on Corporation Street in Belfast, um, and the new equipment has arrived from um, various parts of the country. Uh, as I think it, in, it eventually landed with us in March following some delays due to COVID restrictions, but the whole purpose of having such a rigorous testing regime is to make sure that, that uh, the equipment, both the, the hardware and the software, stands up to the rigours of the testing environment. Uh, in DVA, and that testing has begun. Uh, the lifts arrive. There's brake rollers. There's um, you know the the, the test lanes there, and is operational. Uh, I'll hand over to Pat, who can maybe provide you a wee bit more detail about the the process and the rigour that's been applied. Yeah, the the, the equipment um, project uh, for the new test centres and uh, the rollout of the for the, the replacement of the equipment in the uh, remaining test centres um, was uh, tendered a couple of years ago. Uh, and in that there was a specification for the lift, um, but we were heavily involved um, with the manufacturer and um, <clears throat> we actually went to their manufacturing plant in Burgos in Spain, a company called Rumi, 
um, and worked with them on the prototype of the lift and the design specifications. Um, and we've, we, we worked with their parent company, uh, Worldwide Environmental Products from um, San Diego, California, uh, on the certification of that lift. Um, so we, we, we finally got the lift delivered um, uh, late last year. Um, again, as a, as a result of COVID, things were delayed. Um, we have it in our Corporation Street offices, um, and we're putting it through uh, rigorous testing. Uh, in fact, we put it through full load testing um, in the latter part of last week, um, putting it up for 100 cycles a day within three hours uh, to determine whether or not there was any pressure on the hydraulics um, or on the, the, the mechanical parts. Um, there, there wasn't, and that was reassuring. Um, and over the next number of weeks, um, we're essentially going to uh, attempt to test that lift to destruction um, to, just to see whether or not um, it will meet the demands that we're going to put upon it in a, in a test centre. Um, so, uh, one of the important um, learning points from this is where there are uh, opportunities to improve the specification or we detect um, within the lift that something um, could be improved, the manufacturer is very keen to work with us um, and to build that into the design specification for the lifts that will be rolled out to the Hyde Bank Test Centre um, next year. Um, and in eight months' time, we'd be placing the order for all of that equipment. Um, but by that time, we'll have tested the lift, we'll have tested the brake rollers, we'll have tested the play detectors, we'll have tested the um, emissions analyzer, uh, we'll have tested the headlight tester. We'd have created a virtual test centre in Corporation Street where we can move vehicles between lanes um, um, so that we can replicate as far as is reasonably practical um, a test centre in one location using a variety of vehicles over a period of time. Then when we get into Hyde Bank, we'll do the final in-place testing where we it's rather than it being a virtual lane, it will be the actual lane, so we'll test it once it's all in place in the new test centre. But by that stage, we will have tested the mechanics of, of all of the equipment to make sure that they perform uh, to the specification that we set and that the calibration that um, those pieces of equipment have been uh, calibrated to, that the, uh, the readings that we get for them are consistent over a period of time using different types of vehicles. Thanks very much to both of you. That was that was really good. And I think it's very reassuring to hear, you know, just how rigorous the testing is. Um and hopefully and I'm sure you'd say the same that we're never in a situation like this again. Um it's been a very challenging year for everyone. Um and I think when we look back even to, to when this all kicked off at the start of last year, and obviously COVID has had a massive impact as well. So um thanks very much for, for all your feedback on that. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank, thank you. We have three remaining, remaining members asking questions, and we are a bit pushed for time, so I would ask members to keep them focused. Uh, so, firstly, Keith, then Dolores, uh, then Roy. Okay, thank you. Thanks, gentlemen. My question is sort of uh, regarding cycles. I've done a quick calculation that you're probably doing 7,500 cycles per year if you base them three an hour, eight hours a day approximately for lifts. So, is there a chance, considering your last lift's done 150 to 160,000? You go back to a four-year change, which has cost one point nine eight million, and I'm not taking away from safety at all that it's overkill. I don't know that I agree with your figures. I think the figures that were estimated was about twenty thousand lift cycles per lift. 
um, 22,000 um, in the DVA test centre environment. Um, so I say four years is, is, I suppose, the minimum figure um, that they stand over the equipment. And then obviously then we would have to factor that in, taking into consideration the other metrics and, 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 and safety, as you say, uh, to get a, a real sort of, um, you know, uh, qualified um, life expectancy for the lift that we can work with in terms of our replacement programme. So that, I suppose, is where we're looking to get all the other information, the metrics that was previously unavailable, um, to help inform those decisions going forward in terms of replacement programme. Just to clarify the figure point, if they're doing roughly 7,500 per year, some of them was in a long 10 years? Some of those lifts, I think, were in 10 years, yeah. Yep. That's 75,000. On this paper here, it says 150 to 200,000. But anyway, we'll not get into the point of that. But it's just my point is we don't come down too low and replace them. Perfectly good equipment. That, that's all I'm making. I'm not taking away from the safety aspect that we don't go too far the other way. The pendulum shouldn't swing too far back. And final question, Mike covered it briefly. Just from a, a maintenance point of view, obviously, I presume Maha has got the contract of maintenance and inspection, yeah? Mm -hmm. Is there an additional inspector plus the insurance inspection? So is there three? Aspects to that because normally when they equip a lifting equipment, you have a lawler lift, you have the insurance inspection. But have you done a separate inspector, including the Maha inspection? That's right, yep. I mean, and, and that's one of the, the, the lessons we did learn from this report. And one of the recommendations that came out of the audit report was that we should manage the independent insurance inspection. And that contract was put in place in the 1st of May last year. So they report directly to DVA now, as opposed to through the Maha contract. Maha still have the plant preventative maintenance uh, arrangements in place, and they do their, their routine inspections of the equipment and maintain it and repair it as required. It's Maha inspecting plus the insurance inspector reporting back to DVA. Reporting back to DVA, yep. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thanks, uh, gentlemen. Thank you, Keith. Over to Dolores. Uh, thanks, Chair. I want to welcome you to your new role. I look forward to working with you, um, particularly given that you're a constituency colleague. Uh, could I just ask, uh, one of the things that happened during the time of the, the lift crisis was about getting good information out in, uh, to customers and about... Um, the uh, telephone and electronic system, people find it hard to get through. I just wonder, were there any lessons learned in, in relation to the frequently asked questions and whether the people at the end of the line uh, were properly trained and briefed in terms of being able to answer the questions raised uh, by customers? Yeah, I think at the time, uh, Dolores, there was certainly, um, you know, it was it was quite frantic. Um, certainly in the first uh, three to four weeks, as you'd appreciate, uh, as we tried to maximise the number of tests and get in touch with those customers affected. Uh, I think, if anything, we have learned through the the sort of the prolonged. Um, COVID crisis, the importance of being able to contact our customers directly, and Mike touched on it earlier. Um, we've seen a big uptake in our online services um, and our digital transformation. Um, we hope to be able to access those customers by way of email and text as opposed to the old previous, you know, send out letters, which I have to say has been a bit of an inhibitor in being able to contact those customers directly when we've been um, putting in place um, resumption of driving tests, for example, where we had to write out the number of customers when um, others we could have texted or emailed. So we're encouraging um, those other digital channels to come forward um, so that we can be more responsive and communicate much more quickly to the affected groups. So definitely a lesson learned and something that we will work to take forward through our wider transformation of all our, scheme, all our systems. I think if I could add to that, Dolores, um, our booking system now makes it mandatory um, that a, a mobile number or a, an email address is provided to us at the point of booking. 
um, so that then gives us the opportunity to contact people electronically very quickly. Uh, thanks, Chair, and thanks for that. The, the only uh, further comments I would add is, and how did you ensure that that quality is maintained? Will, will you um, uh, initiate like a mystery shopper uh, type to dip sample the quality of interaction? And also then, will, will you uh, or have you worked with uh, the police and others in relation to designing out fraud in relation to those communication methods? Um, I think on, on the, the survey, we have surveys on, on the booking service because, I mean, there's over um, over a million bookings as a year. Now, I must admit, we had to suspend some of those during the, the crisis. To give you an idea, um, I think at one stage, the, the number of queries coming in through our customer service team had gone up 3,000%. So, again, it was sort of batting down the hatches and trying to get that information out as quickly as we could. But uh, we would normally have uh, surveys for, for people after we've communicated with them. And I say the idea is to reinstate that. I think the big issue at the moment, the means of communication is one thing. But due to the many measures we've put in place, sometimes it's very difficult. You're trying to communicate, communicate a complex message. And, uh, and even when we're going out with those text messages, some of those were going over the equivalent of something like 16 texts. Because there's a limit to what characters you can put in. So I think part of the issue has been really the complexity of what we're trying to communicate, as well as just the channels. Uh, thank you, Chair. Okay. Thank, thank you, Dolores. Uh, go to Roy for the final question. Just a, a, a brief point. Um, there's a bit, bit like Keith um, in terms of the uh, specification of, of the lists. Um, you've indicated that you're operating at about a quarter of the weight that uh, the design cycle has operated with a small, very smaller uh, number of, of successful outcomes, shall we say. Now, by reducing that weight by a quarter will have a dramatic effect and increase in the number of valid cycles that it will be able to operate, considerably reduces the stresses on the components and the likelihood of the development of stress fractures. So my, my question is, in specifying new equipment, um, can you not more closely specify a, a guarantee? Asked, what is the guarantee period based on your likely uh, user model, so you have a better idea of uh, the, ultimately the running cost of using that particular manufacturer's equipment? Um, can you not get the manufacturer to tell you more accurately how long uh, uh, they will last for and he will stand over them? I think it's certainly a, a lesson learned going forward. Um, the one thing I would say is that the contract for the new equipment supplier um, was awarded before the lift issues occurred, uh, so okay. uh, we didn't have the, the, the benefit of, of hindsight in terms of the award of that contract, unfortunately. Uh, but certainly, I, I, I agree that you know we should um, be able to use information that's available, such as uh, the load capacity and the number of cycles, to try and inform a, a more reasonable. And it's back to the point, Keith. You, you know as Raised, you do not want to get rid of um, very serviceable equipment before uh, its end of life, so that we have to try and find a balance. And hopefully, the information that we get um, through the work that we're doing now will help us inform that for these lifts and any future lifts that we install. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. And quick supplementary case. What you see on the new lifts is the, you know, the, the vibrators, I call it, are they on the new lifts? Yes. It's yes. obviously cut more strain than a vertical lift, it's a horizontal load. Well, the, the new lift has been designed with the uh, plate detectors as part of the design specification. And in terms of the new lift, the new lift was certified at it operating at its maximum capacity. The maximum capacity in the lift is about four, 
is four tonnes. It was actually certified at five tonnes, so well above um, the, the, the weight that we'd, we would ever operate it at, um, although there will be a mechanism put on it so that you cannot exceed the maximum. Um, so the lift is actually over-specified, um, and that's something that we're content with. But it is done in um, association with the LOLA regulations, which would state that you know, a certification will go with 22,000 cycles per year. Um, and as uh, both Megan and Jeremy have said when we were speaking to Maha, they would, guarantee, they would guarantee that the lift would last anywhere from 5 to 25 years, depending on how you use it, how you maintain it, where you use it, how it's stored etc. etc. But it's a very, very difficult um, figure to to arrive at. Okay. Thanks, Chair. Okay, thank you. And this brings the session to close. I know David you did mention at the start something in relation to taxi operators. Uh, yes. We have time for a question if you if Yeah, I'll, I'll not uh, test your patience. I know you need out of here. Uh, but it was an issue that I did want to introduce today on the back of the committee agreeing last week. And there's been a, some meetings revolving around some MLA colleagues and indeed MPs about this matter of taxi enforcement. And we've spoken to quite a few taxi drivers who there's dissatisfaction there in relation to how it's carried out. I know they do operate under legislation, uh, but is there like a public code of conduct as to how when an operation has taken place that uh, the public can identify whether things are being done correctly or not, or there's maybe things not being done correctly? Well, um, yes, I mean, our, our enforcement officers are all civil servants. Sorry, you, you were previously in charge of that unit, Jeremy? Yes, that right? I was yes. head of enforcement, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm well placed to answer. Uh, yeah, the, uh, there, there is the, the NICS Code of Ethics where we're, we're all civil servants and enforcement officers fall under that. We have our own internal DBA Code of Conduct Policy and Conflict of Interest Policy, and again, um, that sort of sets a standard of contact for all our staff in the agency. But moreover, then, um, enforcement officers have to comply with a number of other um, sort of legal statutes, including the Criminal Procedure and Investigations Act, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and the pace codes of practice. So the reality is when they're out there, they're trained investigators. We're in enforcement, we're dealing with issues, uh, you know, in terms of roadworthiness, licensing and infringements, that type of thing. So generally, uh, the engagement can sometimes be, you know, challenging and, and, and often conf confrontational. Um, the key thing, though, is that the, the evidence that the enforcement officers gather then supports the outcome, be that um, dealing of, with a, an offence through a defects notice or a prohibition notice or a fixed penalty, or in some cases, more serious offences going to court. Um, obviously, then we have to prepare the case file for going to court. We have to prepare the evidential test um, for the PPS to direct on and determine whether those cases then proceed to court. Um, so there is protection within the system um, for anybody that encounters enforcement officers and our own internal complaints procedure, of course, if they feel that they have um, you know, been dealt with unfairly at the roadside. So all of those things are in place to support proper enforcement at the roadside. Okay. Uh, from an appearance and an identification point of view, while those duties are being carried out, would it be fair to say that officers would uh, have some sort of, say, high fizz or indeed identification badges? Or is it a case of is it undercover work? Is there is there a degree of entrapment involved in the situation? Entrapment has been uh, an allegation that's been raised before, but I think uh, someone well, some of the members referred to mystery shopper. Um, ultimately, we get uh, complaints um, about. Uh, illegal taxis operating, for example, and we have to prove and supply the evidence, get the evidence to support any claims of, of that. So 
there will be occasions when officers will operate without um, high vis or um, you know their 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 identifi identifiers at that point of time. But at the point of detection, they will clearly identify who they are, what their purpose is. We are trying to improve road safety uh, through the measures that we take at the roadside and also trying to protect and ensure that there's fair competition in the taxi industry, the bus industry and the goods industry. So, you know, there is a mixture, a lot of it on high vis, we have a lot of um, liveried vehicles uh, that are out there, um, and hopefully that acts as a deterrent, but there is also um, an element of, 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 of covert work that is done uh, in an that investigation that includes, of complaints. That includes potentially people saying they need to go to hospital, they, they're maybe acting drunk, various things like that, and try and the driver, because the, don't forget, Belfast is full of taxi drivers who are of a good nature. They're fair. They would not act in a way that any kindness. other member of the public would act. They wouldn't. You know, I mean, the, the bottom line is um, there's strict licensing laws in around um, operating of taxis, depending on what class you're in, and you know, any licensed operator knows the class that they're in and what they're permitted to do within that license. So um, they should not be illegally picking up staff um, or, 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 or customers um, who might be an enforcement officer, um, and that is one way that you know we will will check that they are complying with the regulations. Okay, chair. I know you're caught for time. It's I hope to return to this maybe after yeah. recess, uh, when things are there's, there's others wanting to feed into it. So if the committee would bear with us and actually yeah. have a look at this, it's a very interesting subject. It's yeah. something that I, I think really I, I think it's an issue that that merits its own discussion it does, uh, so. in relation to the seriousness of it. Oh, so sorry, so I'm, I'm more than happy to take that take that point on board, given that this uh, session has run over in yes, relation so to the topics. So I, I, with that vein in mind, I, I'll go to Cahill because he does have his hand up. But if you bear in mind that the committee will probably come back to this. Just quickly, I really appreciate coming in. And Jeremy, you know this here. I asked the department a number of weeks ago in relation to was there any consideration that looking the operational hours within Belfast City? We know, we know that we know that the, the hours are extended from twelve midnight to through to six o'clock in the morning. Um, if Jerry can come back in writing to to state whether or not that would extend to twenty four hours. I mean the whole of Saturday or whatever. Um, I had written that question a number of weeks ago. Just I need clarification on that. Um, whether there's any any indication from the department to look at those operational hours, especially at the weekend. Okay, well we leave that with Jeremy to come well, back. It, to it would be a matter for the department uh, in terms of the legislation, the policy taken forward. Um, from what I can gather, um, Cahill, what you're suggesting would requ would require a, a legislative change that would, would have to be endorsed by the minister. Okay. Yeah, fair enough, and I'll just keep my hand back in place. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. Well, with that in regard, could I thank Jeremy, Pat, and, and Mike for coming to the committee this morning uh, and taking our, our questions. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, committee. You, that was a, that was a very good session. I, I felt. Um, is there any follow-up points, particularly that members? Obviously, the great deal of interest in the driving test. Something that we're going to have to continually keep a watching brief on. I believe regarding what the targets are and are they being met. met. I do think we, we need to look at something in form of benchmarking as to to how we go uh, forward. I think 
some of us may get lost in, in the statistics of this thing, but I think, as Keith rightly outlined, uh, we may be improving in relation to the number of tests that are being carried out. But in relation to the backlog, we're only chasing our tail when it comes to that. In that regard, so I think uh, if we could agree a point, I, I, I would so propose that, that we, we look at how we can set a benchmark and keep a watching brief on the particular issue of driving tests going forward, given, given the backlog that there is. Would members be agreed with that point? Great. Okay. Yeah. Chair, sorry. Sorry, can I come in on a point as well on that? In relation to the theory test I'd raised there about um you know young people particularly who are waiting to um book again who failed their theory test. And uh, Pat had said about the Balamina Centre, which was is is actually I was speaking to our had let the constituent know there and they've said they've been having problems even getting booked in there. So just as well as the driving test I think to keep on about theory tests as well because it's causing huge problems too. No, I, I would agree with that, Liz, and I think probably your point in relation to somebody that fails a, a theory test and then being put out of the, the system and having to reapply again, like the failing of a driving test, I think is a very unfair system. So it's something that I would want to continue to put pressure on the department to see if there is alternatives by way in which we, we can provide for those uh, going forward, because I think it is an important issue. And I also am getting a lot of emails in relation to people that can't get onto the system, they're going on for a booking slot and can't get it, uh, despite what some of the uh, you know the evidence that we heard today. So I think that's something that we need to keep an eye on. So are members agreed with those points? Agreed. Great. Okay. Thank you. Okay, members, moving on to uh, item 15, uh, forward work programme. Can I draw members' attention to the proposed draft work programme, our forward work programme uh, for next week's meeting at page 254, uh, draft forward work programme. Members content? Content. Content. Okay, item 16. Sorry, Liz. It was just um, in relation to the forward work programme, I know we're very close to recess, and one of the items we've been discussing in the previous weeks was a request from Newry Bid and Lisburn Chamber to brief the committee in relation to um, central parking zones in, in both those areas. So I am very conscious that we're heading into recess. Is there any possibility we could get a slot, whether it's on a, on a different day at a committee, as we've done with some of the other um, sectors? to have that briefing uh, before the before recess because it is a very very important issue okay there's a suppose probably i will hand it over to the clerk on that point as to where we can slot that in but are you happy with an informal meeting as opposed to a formal committee meeting on that issue well i mean i think if that we can get it in before recess, i think they would know it, it is important that we we get it in where we can the committee need to hear what the issues are and, and hopefully we can get some work done on that okay and um, i just the September could be too far off, and then you're, you're actually then, you know, you're, you're further back on yeah. where you're going with it. I'm just hearing that that actually is going to be slotted in on the 30th of June, so that should should uh, allay that concern. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Chair. Thank you. Uh, no other issues on the Forward Work Programme, members? No? no. Okay. Can I now go to item 16? Any other business? Have members any other items of business that they wish to raise? No. Okay, that leaves 17. Date, time, and location of next meeting. Um, the next meeting will take place at 10 a.m. Wednesday, the 23rd of June, 2021, in the Senate Chamber Parliament Buildings. Okay, and with that, I'm happy to adjourn. Thank you, members. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber.
Program signed.